How's it going, guys? I'm Zeke. And I'm Jake. And you're listening to the Cinema Sideshow Podcast, episode 156. Oh, infused, mate. I'm very so enthused. Infused. You're wearing the shirt. I am. I did have a blazer on, but it is a little hot, um, and I didn't want to sweat. And, yeah, I'm But sorry. I did get a little dressed up, because Jake, it is our third anniversary. It is. We need, we need like a little buzzer that plays a, a victory sound. You're the post for that. You could have just put... I could just do that. That's true. I'm literally doing post work later. I'm going to add the trailers into the winners and shit and all that. So, yep, Cinema Sideshow turns three today. I like to think of it as we're entering our fourth year. That's how I like to think about it. Okay, well, that's... More numbers. Are you ending your 25th year on this earth? Is that what you're saying? Oh, I mean, yes. Yeah. Am I? Yeah. Maybe. There you go. How does that work? I've always been confused. Because your first year of life is when you're zero years old. and then So your when birth... you turn one, you're really going into your second year of yeah. life. Yeah. So I'm really going to... We're both going into our 26th year of, of life. Yeah, that, yeah, that makes sense. Because we're both scary. turning 25 later this oh, year. When we're 25, we'd be going into our 26th. Well, I guess. If you don't... That's it. Because I know you don't really... You're more of a birthday person than a New Year's person. Yeah. So that makes... I guess that makes sense from that mm. standpoint. I like that we. I feel like we just brushed over that last week. You know, it was the second of January. We we're just like, oh yeah, do you? I feel like we said Happy New Year. Yeah, yeah I think I said it at some point. I'm not sure, but, <laughs> but yeah, it's a, 2022. We do. We have a pretty stacked show ahead of we us. We do. Yeah. Um. So, obviously, we'll we'll kick things off standard. Uh, mm-hmm. Red Rocket is the film we'll be talking about in the second half of the show. That is true. But Jake. Do you have a fun film trivia fact for that film? I do, actually. So, going off last week, of course, we covered Sean Baker again. And, yep. I, and I talked about, like, a little a little hint of the film that would be to come on his Criterion Collection mm. sort of closet picks video where he says something that hints towards the Florida Project in, in like, a, part, a future tense, I should say. And I'm going to do the same thing here because, we, of course, he has a Letterboxd account, very active Letterboxd account that I think we both follow. Yes. Um, or I, I know that I follow. And every now and then he writes like a review and watches a lot of stuff. Um, but if you go back to a review he did a few years ago for a film called Bodied, which I think is a 2017, maybe 2018 film. But if you actually go to his review of Bodied, he specifically praises Simon Rex's performance in that film and says, quote, I would like to see him tackle a dramatic role. There you and, go. Uh, if it almost feels like Thanos grabbing, being like, I'll do it myself. <laughs> <laughs> well, to build on your fact about Simon Rex, mm, um, and yes. to tie into director Sean Baker, uh, Simon Rex accepted the role directly from Sean Baker, mm. uh, who does not like to deal with agents. Uh, Rex, Rex's agent didn't actually know he was involved into the film until after the filming had uh, already finished. Oh, <laughs> So, that's kind of a funny... Ooh, obviously, that plays into kind of almost how we've talked about Sean Baker's grounded sort of way of t- storytelling. It almost yep. sometimes is, if you'd call it anti-film authoritarianism, at least industry authoritarianism, it feels like at times. You know, he, he's not very conventional and he... I'd, I definitely yeah. think there well, is a level... he cuts through the BS. Yeah. And just that's gets the... He does, as you said, yeah. with Thanos, he does it himself. And, <laughs> um, obviously, that tribute is also to Simon Rex himself. Yeah. Um, but Jake, obviously, this is a 2021 release. Yes. So it's not on the poster behind me. No. Would this be on your 1,100 films to watch in your lifetime? Um, See, for me, it kind of teeters one way or the other. I probably would say yes, to be honest. Really? Yeah, and I, but it's more of like a yes because why not scenario. I think it tackles a lot of 
very interesting themes. Of course, we'll get into it. We'll compare it to the Florida Project. We'll compare it to his other films um, and what it is ultimately saying. At least what I... Because I think this is a much more loosely interpretable film than the Florida Project. Sure. I think I think some of the ideas in here are a little more vague and, and interpretable for the audience, which will be a lot of fun to talk about. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think for that reason, yeah, I think so. 1100, that's a lot of films at the end of the day. Yeah, and, no uh, Yeah. What about you? Would you put this on Probably your Probably no. Yep. Me. Okay. Um, and I'm going to get into it a little bit more, particularly in relation to, I think this is not Baker's best film. Um, sure. Yeah. And all the film that if anyone asked me about him as a director, the one I would show them. Um, it's a bold film. Mm-hmm. Um, but I actually <laughs> think um, another director tackled some similar themes, um, and we might be talking about him towards the end of the show. But mm, okay, um, okay. one of his films, I think, touches on sort of particularly the industry-based ideologies. Um, I think a little... I preferred his way of delivering it over this way. But there is... there is, it, It's not a critique on this film because I actually think it plays to this film's strengths. But mm. we'll tackle it in the second half Very of the show. vague, very interesting. Well, yeah. Zeke, before we move on, let's... Grab our drinks, because I realise it's sitting here. We forgot yeah, about Yeah, <laughs> well, you know, we're jumping into the awards part. Oh, you know, that's a good point. Let's do so, it. Are we oh, going to do, do the awards? Now, so, we're going to do it now? It. Okay, yeah, let's do it now. To, to, you know, to kick off the ceremony, Jake. To do it after, what are, what are we going to have? 214 yeah. hours of cinema sideshow so goodness. We've got we've got a couple of beers. We'll cheers across the table to yep. say yep. all of Jake's technology. We'll hold it in front of our microphones. <laughs> right there. Um, so, big thank you to everyone that's listened to us. In the last three years, from any guest on the show to if you've just come on for the 2021 into 22 season, yeah, I think we called them seasons. This is the start. Oh no, this is the ending of season three. Would you say that? Yeah. Yes. And then start of season four is next week. Ooh, exciting! So cheers. We haven't been cancelled. We (laughs) not yet. We've lasted longer than Family Guy (laughs) back in the day. Uh, Oh, there it is. Oh, baby, that was good. I get to drink on the show now. I'm happy. It's been a while since we drank on the show. Yeah, I think... I can't actually remember the last time we did. Neither. It was, this is the first time we're drinking in this office. Mm. And I'm I'm pretty sure we didn't drink at the, the Murdoch studio. Oh, I remember. I'm pretty, I mean, I'm pretty sure you were pretty the, yeah, angsty about first, that. Yeah. Between I, the two of us, you were the one that was like, let's not do this. <laughs> obviously, you know, we've talked a little bit about it on the show, but the first show, the precursor show to the Cinema Sideshow podcast was... The Blue Velvet podcast, ah. which you know, a friend of the show, Jack, Bet, myself, Keenan was on there. Keenan Bailey were the three original members of that show, and the first episode we were indeed intoxicated nice. because that was and, our and, first and night. There out. is video of that as well. There is. Yeah. <laughs> Jack and I, like, yeah, I could say this now because I'm long graduated from university, hid a couple of. You can't get these bottles anymore, too. I could never find them. These bottles of Little Fat Lamb. It was like a, okay. a ginger beer cider, and it would be like ten dollars a bottle, and it was like eight standard drinks. So, like, yeah. you know, when you're a which, uh, what was I nineteen twenty at the time, it's like so much. Yeah, it was funny like hiding them outside of the, the campus and then going in. Um, yeah, that's interesting. Back but if any of my ex students at my teaching gig listen to that, don't do that. Yeah, very naughty. Be responsible. Don't do that. It's um, rude. Yeah, of course. Um, <laughs> yeah, so do we want to jump in? I've got just a little precursor to our awards, Jake. Uh, mm, okay. 
according to my letterbox, I logged 132 films in the last year. Oh. Um, a significant decline from the year before. Yeah, I, th- I think we both sort of actively didn't chase it this time no. around. Um, I'll check mine real quick. I should have it. Um, oh, I can go on to stats because I got my pro account. Yes. My letterbox. By the way, before I forget, um, we should give a shout out to Serialized, which is the new sort of TV counterpart to Letterboxd. This is true. Which is actually out now. I'll get the spelling really quickly for everyone. It's very confusing, the spelling. Yeah, I mean, they took the E out of the ED, like Letterboxd, so I understand the motivation behind it. Yeah. But the spelling is uh, S-E... Let me actually get him real close for this. S-E-R-I-A-L-I-Z-D. There you That's go. That's it. Jeez, mate. You know what it is? I want to blame my glasses, but it's also a 4K monitor and with like, tiny text. And you were saying to me <laughs> off the air, it's quite a nifty new service that obviously we'll probably bring into the show now because we can sort of add it to our uh, reviews of... We do talk about the shows we watch on here too. Yeah. Um, you can rate it by individual seasons or shows as a collective. Yeah, yeah. So, for example, I've like given you know, BoJack, Breaking Bad, like all of that stuff, like flat scores. Although, uh, later to, we're going to talk about it later in the show but the second season of euphoria starts airing today on binge I did see a trailer for which that. oh interesting so i'm definitely going to watch i might have to watch the first season again to catch up mm. um but i'll probably review season two as like a single um entity. single entity yeah exactly yeah. so serialized get on it if you're a fan of letterbox my letterbox tells me that i uh entried 130 films last year oh, beat you by two two oh goodness me 132. There's probably a lot of shorts in there as well, so... Yeah. So well, it's a significant bit. decrease from 307 the year prior. Oh, so. Jesus Christ. Um, and you know, the funny thing is, it's like, I'm like, oh, well, that's not even... That's like just over 30% of what I did the year before. But mm. I still don't know many people that have logged as many things as we... Oh, God, no. no. Uh, I know a friend of the show, Stephen, he's sort of on that, you know, New Year's um, ride of... He's, you know, fit 10 films in 10 days sort of. Yeah. We'll see. It's really we hard. Wish, we wish him luck. I remember January when I did the challenge or attempted the challenge. I think I logged maybe 60 films in the first 40 days or something like yeah, that. Yeah, that's insane. Um, and then you just hit a wall when everything like university comes around and, and work gets in the way and, you know, suddenly 90-minute films or 130-minute films, it's like they wad up. But... Um, yeah. yeah, you know, that's uh, obviously a lot is. of films to talk about between the two of us. Yeah. Um, and we've got some awards to ditch out. Dish out. Ditch D- out. Ditch out. Ditch them, just throw them. <laughs> like baseball or something. So I guess we probably should kick off with, obviously, mm. the year that was, Jake, 2021. Let's do it. With yeah. the Cinema Sideshow Appreciation Award. Exciting. So for those who aren't aware, and of course you can listen to our previous awards, episodes 52 and 104, respectively. Um, and I think we recap all of them in 104, but I'll recap like the main winners really quickly. Yeah. I won't get too deep into it because we got a long show ahead of us. We do. We're gonna do all that. So, um, for those who don't know, the appreciate the sideshow appreciation award for 2021 are films that did we didn't necessarily review for the podcast or do as a film of the week, mm-hmm. but just films that released in the last year uh, that we want to give shout outs and we want to give them a bit of a ranking. So, yeah, because they may not make. Unfortunately, obviously, with our later category our golden chalk top that's based around the film of the week which means that films are competing over as of our countdown through the decades challenge over a yeah. hundred years of films so yeah um <laughs> it's quite a competitive category exactly so we wanted to do this to shout out some of the more newer films that we maybe didn't cover or just didn't quite fit the bill yeah. elsewhere 
So I'll uh, I'll kick us off with yeah, my number absolutely. three. I'm gonna write so, these down as you go because I got a table for you that's blank. Yeah, beautiful. Um, so this is technically fourth or third runner-up. Yes. Um, so we're gonna do third runner-up, second runner-up, first runner-up, runner yeah. and then our main pick. Um, so my third runner-up <laughs> is uh, an Australian film that we actually did do on the show. Um, that was a 2021 release, and that was uh, Knit Ram. Knit Ram. Well done, Knit Ram. Way to go. We have fans. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Obviously, we actually yeah got a got a nice little community shout out from that one, which was fantastic. And yeah, I think that was a Dune episode we talked about. Yeah, that. look, it's a, it was a heavy film. Um, yes, you know, it's definitely in the same um, vein as as sort of Jennifer Kent's Nightingale mm. um, in terms of subject matter. Um, it's heavy handed, and honestly, you know, it was it's getting a nice little honourable shout out here. It was probably one of my favorite reviews that we did in the last year. For sure, yeah. Um, I think it was definitely one of the most focused and refined reviews that we mm. did. So, um, yeah, I, if I was to recommend an episode of our show, that's probably from the last year. That'd probably be the one I'd go for. There you go, yeah. And I'm in total agree with you, and you, and you will see why soon. There you go. In our awards discussion. But for but, my number three placement in the 2021 Sideshow Appreciation Awards, goes to Last Night in Soho. Oh, that's nice. Getting yeah. Edgar Wright mentioned in there. Yeah, exactly. Well, look, here's the thing, and this is probably if if Jake from the past, maybe six months ago, was listening to this, he'd probably be like, "Oh my god, why isn't this higher? What on <laughs> earth? Why isn't this number one?" And I think, look, it's a, it's an absolutely fantastic film. The first half, like the build, the way it develops its plot, and all those aspects come mm. together, and the the mystery of it, the the time travel aspect of it, it's absolutely fantastic. It's still like one of the best films of the year in regards to that in terms of how the story builds and I understand there are people who have problems with it some characters are pretty useless admittedly and I've had I've had, <laughs> it was I've had some... the... <laughs> it's probably one of the funniest sequences we were talking uh, about well uh... we, we yeah we talked about this on our discussion um, but I still want to give this film a shout out because I think at the end of the day that there's a reason why I was so excited for it because of the elements that you know were displayed in the log line and then the trailer came out that kind of showcased the tone it was going for and the film achieves every single thing that I was excited about it for in terms of the tone and then those two characters and sort of the time-bending aspects of it. Sure. Um, and the horror, psychological horror aspect. I mean, the film absolutely nails all of those beats. Mm-hmm. I wish the script was a little tighter in places, um, but I still wanted to give a shout-out. I think it's absolutely excellent. And it comes out to DVD very, very soon in the next week or two. So yeah, that's crazy. I'm going to grab that. Well, going back to my second runner-up, this is um, obviously all of mine. Would like we've said, they're based on our twenty twenty-one films. So, of course, handy thing about Letterbox, you can just click twenty twenty-one and <laughs> all of them show up. And but a bada boom. This one was a very early um, in the year release, but a fantastic one nonetheless. An animated film, The Mitchells vs. the Machines. Oh, my... I love this pick. Yeah. So this was obviously a film. At least on Netflix, um, we talked to it, gave it a bit of love. I think last week we were talking about it. Last week, well, we were just going through your, the award talk. For other, oh, maybe yeah, might have got yeah. mentioned there, or maybe the week before. But um, this is a fantastic um, family animated film. I think I was laughing end to end. Love the style of animation, and actually has some real feels moments that actually Aww. do hit very hard at home. It's, yeah, uh, a really nifty film. Yeah, no, it's a lot of fun, and it's just a very sweet story of family, and it just it works on those levels where it's like, oh, you know, it's a family yeah. fun animated film, but it's like it works, and yeah. it, it's a lot of them just don't. A lot of them are cheesy or 
not very clever or any of those things. And and particularly got the main character. Like I think she's a great written character mm. um, in a lot of really subtle ways, which I really appreciated that. That's a great pick. I'm glad you picked it. No, no worries. Well, over to you, bud. Cool. All right. So my second pick, and again, this is one that I did not expect to end up in this list. I've heard about it for a long time. The whole like, oh, you know, it's a film based on a series of tweets. But Zola, I was shocked. <laughs> How much I loved Zola. My goodness. Now, it is sort of... And I remember opening my, like, review of this as, like, it doesn't have much in the way of, like, character development or, or like, I want to say plot. There is, like, this wild, crazy plot that, of course, is based on a series of tweets based on real-world events. Um, but I think what I loved about it so much is that it, it really leaned into that concept mm. of it being sort of the first of its own medium transcendence. And how you look at something like Pinocchio and you, and you have, like, Jiminy Cricket physically reading the storybook of Pinocchio and yeah. Lee's Hulk and, like, the comic book pages and the way they're edited around that. Like, it's so self-referential that I could not help but appreciate that. Even just like, the sound bites of, like, the little, you know, dopamine-hitting effects from your phone and the way they would plant that into certain scenes and certain lines it would play under. And mm. Just, like, really stylistic and just awesome. I had so much fun with this film. I cannot believe how much I love Zola. So it's my number two pick. Well, my runner-up for the uh, you know Sideshow Appreciation Award is Judas and the Black Messiah. Oh, so, very nice. Um, I looked back on... So at first, when I was putting together this list, you look back at all your scores, because that's a good start starting point. But Yes. Um, this, obviously, you know, this film got a lot of, you know, uh, Oscar bars, a lot of award bars. We were talking about it. All throughout the first third of the year, yep. Um, along amongst other other films that probably come up in my list at least, mm, um, sure. And yeah, it just it, it was one of those films that we knew it was going to be good, and it just delivered. Really, that yeah. was quite simply what it was. It was a great way of storytelling. You know, performances from like you know Daniel Coulier are just yeah fantastic. Like Stanfield, yeah, they're just oh, they're absolutely amazing. So. Get a bit of love I still here. Can't believe they both got supporting actor nominations. Makes no sense. <laughs> most confusing. Classic. That was the most confusing. That was probably my, if, in terms of reactions to Oscar nominate. That was my number one. Is my reaction to that? Look, Eve Stanfield. Oh goodness. Next, of course, the winner, Daniel Coulier. So yes. there you go. No, I mean it's a great pick. That's definitely one of the. I, I would dare say, it, I think it's a very underappreciated film because I don't see many people talk about it. Yeah, it kind of came, went... Um, I think last year felt like an odyssey for a lot of people. So mm. um, to be getting to the end of, of this season of the show and, and talking about just where we started to where we are now is yep. pretty crazy. Mm. Um, so yeah, um, that's going to be my runner-up for my appreciation award. Nice, very nice. Well, my runner-up has to be, and we talked about this very recently... The French Dispatch. Um, this film's absolutely phenomenal. We went into great detail and length talking about it just a few weeks ago. So I don't have to elaborate too much on that, but it is my favourite live-action film from Wes Anderson. I think the anthology storytelling style just yeah. fits so perfectly with the whole idea of journalists sort of scraping by and finding stories and piecing them together and the non-chronological chaotic nature of doing that I just think it represented that so so well and it's just bonkers fun yeah absolutely fun what's going to make my life really easy because oh, my winner oh, oh. for or at least my nomination for appreciation award yep. is indeed the French ah, so, well done 
Um, pretty much just put all of what Jake just said into my <laughs> mouth and then that's it. Um, yeah, look, it's me. definitely um, for a 10th film. It is the amalgamation. We talked about it yes, in great detail yes. on the episode. Just watch the episode or listen to the episode. Um, yeah, it's a fantastic film. And I know Luna is currently doing a contest where oh. the person who goes and sees the French Dispatch the most gets a signed copy of a book, a French Dispatch issue signed by Wes Anderson. What in the world? So, I did not know this. Um, That's kind of tempting. <laughs> well, the funniest thing of that is it's like, wouldn't you just like get a group of people together and then like just take all their tickets or like get them all to see right. Oh, so you have to deliver the tickets. You have to, to prove physical. that you've been oh, okay. saw it. Okay. Yeah, that's yeah. a good point, actually. Have I got my... I've got tickets here. Is this... i got West Side Story. There's Dune. Uh, oh, there it is. French Dispatch. i got my ticket. There you go. So we're ready to go on that's that already one. one. Yeah, perfect. Beautiful. Well, I'm, yeah, that does make it easy. That's your number one. I mean, it's a perfect number one for you. Uh, for me, I have to go with... And we did talk about this on the show. Shiver Baby. Yeah, that's a very um, fair call. Yeah, which is just such a great film, very anxiety-inducing. I know Stephen, I mentioned him a minute ago, he only just recently watched it and he fell in love with it. Just the mm. the the careful direction behind that film is just so spot mm. on. And unlike this episode of the show, we are a party you do want to stay in and not mm. get out of. <laughs> so. Exactly. This isn't a wake, Zeke. No. It's a new beginning, or a shiver, I should say. It's, it's in the name. <laughs> there you go. So, French Dispatch, Shiver Baby, sort of up there for us. Love it. Very Love nice. It. Well, unfortunately, this leads us into... <laughs> well, unfortunately, fortunately, depends how you see this, this of section of the show. Of course. Um, not every film lived up to our expectation this year, Jake. Mm. Indeed, no. Um, and this leads us to the sort of polar... Opposite of our golden chalk top, it's the Stale Popcorn Award, which... Jake, what's the Stale Popcorn Award? So the Stale Popcorn Award is for films that were sort of on the other end of the appreciation. So, of course, this uh, is exclusive to the, I guess, 56 films that we reviewed... Uh, oh, sorry, yeah, right, 52 films that we reviewed over the last year. The film of the week, specifically. Yeah. The season so, three films. Yeah, so it's a, it's a considerably much tighter selection of films and that can include ones from our decade countdown ones from i mean this goes all the way back i mean it i really doubt it but this goes from nomadland onwards to today's episode i doubt that's going to be the pick but mm -hmm. it's in the realm of those 52 films yep. now i should clarify we're going to do our you know pick number three pick number two pick number one but then the uh sort of the fourth pick or the stay or popcorn winner is our collective we sat down and discussed it and both agreed to one winner of the year. Yeah. Um, Same with that golden chalk top. Yeah. So, for, um, I guess, uh, context, in the last two years, we gave it to The Lion King, the 2019 remake, and The Invisible Man, the 2020 remake, respectively. It's gone a lot of remakes, Zeke. Yeah. See if we can break that this year. I think it, I think it comes back to... Um, we always like to say this. These aren't the dirt worst film. These are just no. the poorest... Poorest or most disappointing film we had for our film of the week. Exactly. Um, and in particular to the, the context of this podcast. Yeah. Um, whatever so, that may mean. Yeah. You know, whether it was a good discussion or a bad discussion or we just sort of collectively walked out of the film or the theatrical experience just so weighted down. Yeah. I think that I think that's relevant in our picks. Good way of saying it. Yeah. All right. Well, for my 
third runner-up. Mm, yes. Um, I'm going to have to go with... And this was tricky because the second and first runner-up, a little bit easier to pick. Um, third, I was kind of torn between two films, but sure, I'm going to sure. opt for... Um, I'm actually just going to opt for Supernova on this one. Interesting. Okay. So, and the reason I'm going to do this is um, this film, looking at the last 52 episodes, I completely forgot I watched this film. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Oh, no. Which, you know, ironic based on the actual subject subject matter. Oh, my God. No, I I, I just think this film maybe had a poor timing uh, release schedule here in Australia. Yeah. yeah, there was there was a preview screening the year beforehand, um, which we decided to see uh, Ammonite instead, and which was an equally disappointing yeah, sort of compared experience. to another version of a similar story. Yeah, well, the the fact of the matter is within the context of this podcast, we did the father the previous week. Yeah, and it's like you're done. <laughs> so um, I'm sorry, and I think lose. that literally ties perfectly in with the Ammonite portrait comparisons exactly exactly um which i still can't believe we don't get ski armor's film until may that new oh one. my god you know how angry i am about that yeah i like checked it today i was like oh because like you know people of i follow on letterboxd watching it i'm like oh when do we get that and it's may yeah it's a long time so, i remember it was going to be like november december and then like the day after they changed it to may oh my god anyway anyway yeah, no worries so, yeah, my third runner-up is Supernova. Cool. All right. Well, I think that's a fair pick because, yeah, it's it's disappointing, but it's not the worst film in the world it's by no means. Uh, for not me, compared to the other ones. I'm yeah. Okay. <laughs> oh, here we go. That was a distant third runner-up compared to my second first and I think the winner. Yeah. No, that's fair enough. Well, for my third runner-up, probably has to go to Malcolm and Marie. Now, it's funny because I mentioned Euphoria earlier in the show. Of course, it's a Sam Levison Zendaya sort of um, a joint project yeah. or, and then you've got John David Washington joining for this feature film that they you know I appreciate so much about it the way they went about making it shooting it during you know COVID lockdowns a, a safe procedure and, and frankly being quite inventive with the idea of okay this, well this is how we're going to frame this story around this idea of them this couple arriving home from their movie premiere and it's all about that conversation yeah. I appreciate a lot about that but that conversation is it is riddled with issues and anxiety and it's just it's the night that never ends and yeah. not for the good reason no exactly it's it it ends up being really sour and just kind of unlikable in a lot of ways yeah i seem to recall the the most interesting part about the Malcolm marie obviously we you know like we said we did it very early this it, year yep. on the show um as per the star pop call and we went in very excited we very excited yeah, to this yeah yeah um you know, it's funny, bottle films, because that's probably the best way of describing them, um, can be really inventive and fascinating and interesting. Yeah, sure. Um, but it means that, yeah, dialogue and performance are the things that take uh, take precedent um, and really need to be quite dynamic and interesting. And for the most part, yeah, this this film was either walked that line between, yeah, like being absurdly cynical yeah. and crass to being inventive at times and then but most and, and quite often sadly quite boring mm. because and repetitive i think that was the big thing um well i think the repetitiveness comes from and i talked about this is the idea that we sort of start the film in an argumentative state where 
the crux of the argument that these this couple's having is revealed within the first 10-15 minutes. And sure. sure, it's elaborated on, but two hours of elaboration, I'm sorry, but that it becomes very tiring writing. Yeah. And I think it comes, it's like, you know, people are like, oh, well, we've always had these couple, we've all been in a couple or in a relationship where an argument just doesn't seem to end. And it, sure. it starts as one thing and ends up being a completely different thing. But for the most part, there is no natural evolution in the argument. It actually circles a lot of yeah. the same sort of thing. Well, again, the, the, cr- the realisation they have is in the first 10 minutes. Yeah. It's not like the thing I thought the argument was about 10 minutes in is not the same thing that it was two hours. And it's like, I, I knew that. Yeah. <laughs> I remember that. We compared that it to Blue Jay. Yeah, that, re- yeah, yep. that review in particular is quite funny because I think I walked out of our review of this. This happens quite a few times. Mm. I'll go into thinking one thing and then after sitting down and talking about it, I often, it normally favor, it becomes favorable. Like I'll come in quite cynical, walk out quite favorable. That sure. one, I walked out like, no, I hate this film more now. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, which you're right. That is, it, it is very rare for us to like a film less after talking about it for 30 minutes. Yeah, that was definitely one of them. <laughs> yeah, yeah, which is a big shame. So yeah, vastly disappointing film, unfortunately. Yeah. Um, so my second runner up is Black Widow, um, mm, okay. which, you know, I think is a pretty safe, predictable thing for me to have on yeah, my no, list. Yeah, no, you weren't a huge fan of it. Um, <laughs> yeah, you, go back, it. you go back to that review, I'm pretty much stay my course on my opinion of that film. Mm. I think it was hindered by things like timeline, timing. Um, I think the the few positives I can give are things like I do like Florence Pugh's performance in it. Yeah, sure. Um, but it's very contrived and mostly unnecessary and feels quite such a hollow film that really feels like it was really just Scarlett Johansson's final paycheck. And then mm. with all the things that unfolded following that... <laughs> yeah, and she still had to fight for that paycheck. Uh, it's still... <laughs> it ended up being just a hodgepodge mess. And obviously, you know, we had on our Spider-Man review and we've talked about some all the shows that came out in that last year too. Yep, yep. Um, I have still haven't seen like Shang-Chi and the Eternals, but you know, you've got Jake's take on that and he's probably always going to give a nicer review. On it's, yeah. Every, his... when I give every MCU film that came out in the last year, a three star review, it means they're all pretty not great. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I think this is definitely weaker than the Spider-Man film that we talked about a couple of weeks in the show. Um, and probably easily weaker than all four of the series that were released sure. in the last year. So, oh, well, well, five, if you include the what if animated series that's well. true yeah. i would definitely yeah still then hold to that there you um, go. so yeah. yeah it's just a such an unnecessary film that was probably hindered by the fact that disney slash you know like marvel didn't yep. get on the progressive train until five or six years later like past the due date really. yeah I, I th- this would have been way stronger if they just released this film instead of captain marvel prior to endgame yep like it still would have felt a little like lo- light in the tooth I mean, it's not an expression. Long in the tooth. Long <laughs> in the tooth. Well, long in the tooth is the expression, but like my point is that it still would have felt like a couple of years too late. Yeah. Because they could have released this after Civil War, and it still would have made sense. Yeah. Um, but releasing they... it after the character is already dead, come on. Yeah. It it definitely you know it's it's like what you've you've brought it up in the last year on the show, and it's a very good thing. Disney slash Marvel, they're just uh, what is it? Passive, passive aggressive, progressive. Passive progressive. <laughs> Passive progressive, like they're very it's a red letter media term, right? You know, yeah, and yeah, you got it from red letter, and it's so true because it's like this is proof that <laughs> they brought this in solely for the fact that they basically needed to 
pass the 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 baton over to the next person who's going to cash in big money, which is Florence Florence Pugh in this situation. Yeah, pass the baton. Uh, yeah, and on top of that, they're you know she's getting one last paycheck, and they're just trying to tick all of the boxes all in one hit. Um, and it just ends up being most of the time just substanceless jargon. And I'm not even a comic book fan, but everything in that film was predictable film 101 tropic stuff. Mm. So I really have nothing, um, more of substance. It's, it very much sits in a very similar conversation to me and Captain Marvel. Yeah, oh, that's fair enough. I mean, for me, I will, cause I'm definitely not going to argue putting it in this place. Cause I, I think you're right for a lot of those reasons. I still definitely liked it more than you did, and I appreciated sort of the family dynamic they tried to make in that with the mm. four of them together and sort of the, 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 the dinner table discussion they have about midway through the point, which is funny because I'm, that was my highlight scene. Was This is my favorite scene in the film because it highlights like the family dynamic. And I made the joke that it's like, you know, the Mitchells versus the machines or the Romanoffs versus the machines, um, which I thought was comparable. But it's funny, they almost cut that scene. Marvel were trying to cut that scene and the director had to fight for it. I'm like, that's the best scene in the I film. I was going to say, maybe if they had gone more of an Incredibles route with this family dynamic, yeah, where, sure. like, or, or like you said, the Mitchells versus the Machines, like, highlighted more of the family dysfunctionality as a collective. Yeah. The film might have been, I think, like you said, I think that's one of the best scenes in the film too. Yeah. Because it actually humanizes them and doesn't, but they had to push so much stuff we had never seen before into this film. Um, because they just didn't care about it when it mattered five, ten years earlier. Yeah, yeah. So, because she really got no development as a character until, honestly, just before she died, really, is when she, like, under, she only really started getting more time, as, you know, outside of being, you know, over-sexualized, what, Civil War? It's probably where it really starts. Oh, no, Winter uh, Soldier? When, yeah, I think the Russos kind of desexualized yeah. her in a lot of ways. Yeah, and I think that's when the transition happened, and it's like, to be honest, one of the the best things that I liked about her character is actually how they handled it in Hawkeye, to be honest, mm. <laughs> where they talk about her impact as a person sure. on, on another person. On other, yeah, yeah um, sure, the people around her. No, that's fair enough. I needed to get that in in, in its defense, but I also have no problem with you putting it on your list. I think it's totally fair. That's all right. But speaking of which, you probably will have a gigantic problem with the next one I'm about to okay. put in, but uh, you, you knew this was going to happen. <laughs> okay. My number two runner-up is The Dry. That's just unbelievable. So. <laughs> it's also weird to think that's only in the last year because it Yeah, feels... that was last January. It's been a... I mean, this, was, this is the second eligible film in in this, I guess, this past season of the Cinema Sideshow podcast. A lot's happened last year. Yeah, a lot, exactly. A lot has happened. Yeah, look, I mean, in all fairness, I haven't given it a rewatch. The couple of people that I've, like, talked to who have since watched it kind of were like, yeah, look, I, I wasn't a huge fan of it, so... And, and not really one way or the other in terms of you really liking it, me really not liking it. Um, but I just... I was quite disappointed. I feel like they're focused on the wrong aspects of Australiana, making, like, Tim Tam jokes and that. I thought Eric Banner's character was kind of nothing, unfortunately. Um, the mystery, it's a fine mystery, but even just like the way it flashes back and forth, like I didn't like sort of the overly grainy flashbacks. And there was just a lot of little things that I just, it didn't jive well with me. So Still sitting on a 3.4 on Letterbox. Yeah, so. no. no. <laughs> you um, have to check it. Had to, had to, yeah, had to no. check it. No, well, go ahead and defend it, seriously. Cause... Um, yeah, look, it was actually a really, it's probably the biggest debate we had on the show, I think. Um, and it was the only uh, episode that wasn't filmed on a 
on on studio location uh, <laughs> um, in a very hot echoey room yep that is true <laughs> yeah it sounds really and this is the episode as well we did the um interview with steven mahalovich for the crossing so it's a very australian focused episode yeah but it's a big one lots of different rooms different chunks of recording that's a good um, point actually it was a very interesting interesting time um but no i, I look i i'm a big fan of the film itself i went and saw this very early last year yep and yeah i i really enjoyed it but I thought all the points you made were, were perfectly adequate. Um, I think it it would be interesting to revisit. Fight music. Fight um, me. <laughs> no, I, I I don't agree so much with the the like. You don't think it captures Australiana? I think that's kind of incorrect. I think, mm. um, especially here, you know, we're we're based in Perth, Western Australia, and it's like. You know, you drive three, four hours out east, there's not a hell of a lot going on. And mm. obviously, this is based in rural, I think it was rural New South Wales, rural, yeah, rural it was, Victoria. It was definitely the east coast. Um, and which they have very similar sort of things um, if you push three, four hours out west in their situation. But it's in, it's an interesting sort of dynamic. Um, I think it has a nice mystery. I like the way the climax works because it's sort of interesting how they uh do that sort of standoff situation and mm. how it's not like it's unconventional but it's also conventional if you know about obviously contemporary australian history you know right. um which ties into the knit ram sort of review how we talked about like you know you don't necessarily have to have a gun to be menacing sure um, yeah there's, there's almost different weapons used in that standoff but the iconography's there of course yeah. um I yeah I'm a big fan of it. Um, Eric Banner is a really interesting one in terms of his acting, um, sort of the direction people use him as. I think he's you know he's pretty good in this sort of this film, but it's an interesting. I think this film could be divisive because you could either get people that really like the mystery crime genre. I think would be fine and okay with this film and actually enjoy it quite a bit. Um, but if you're looking for a little bit more uh, filmic substance, I can see why you might have a problem with it. Yeah. Um, but um, we tend to do that genre particularly really well here in Australia. It's definitely a... But then that also means it has yeah. a competitive feel well, to it's, compete it, with. Well, I mean, that's the thing. It's I think it was the highest grossing film by a, a, a country mile in Australia at mm. the time. I mean, it ma- the fact that it made $10 million when it did was like bonkers not because it was unexpected to make that much money, but just like Australian film in general, like in post-COVID, yeah. making that kind of money, is just, that was unheard of. It was a surprise. It was a big surprise. So, um, But I, I just went in... I think I went in really hyped because of that and because of how much you praised it. You saw it like at least yeah. a week or two before I did. Um, so I think I went into it with those high expectations and just found all sorts of little things that didn't jive with me. Interesting. Yeah. Well... Jake, that brings me into my runner-up, but I don't really need to touch on it too much because you've sure. already brought it up. My runner-up for the Stale Popcorn Award <laughs> is Malcolm and Marie. So Number one, wow. I, Crazy. I think I'll ever re-watch the film again too, so it's it's going to be tough to ever give it a second chance. Cause... Yeah. I actually recommended it to someone the other day. Really? With, with, the, with the forewarning of, I have lots of problems with this movie, but because they were a huge fan of the Euphoria like specials, which are very much just like a conversation in a diner. So I said, mm. look, it's similar. I don't think it's anywhere near as good, but if you want to watch it, go ahead. So 
Sure. There is that interesting side so, to it. That brings us to our stale popcorn. Hey, wait a moment. Oh, no, wait. You got your first I still up. got my runner-up. Beg my pardon. <laughs> How dare you? Well, you know, I don't want to spend too much time on this anyway. We did it, of course. My number one is Blade Runner 2049, um, which is probably here just because, again, I was severely disappointed after seeing after, what, like four years of it finally being out, and I loved the original. We covered that in the podcast 10 weeks prior to that. And I was just, again, a lot of decisions made that I was disappointed with. I thought it was um, overly horny and sexualized for, I get it, like this idea of loneliness and those themes. I just didn't think it really worked for me in that regard. Yeah, especially um, when if, the themes are the thematic connections to the first film because they still talk about loneliness and such in the first film. Yeah, well, it's just sort of like that that thematic thing and then I thought there was really no plot for the first hour. I was kind of bored for long stretches of it. Um, I thought a lot of the visuals, I mean, the visuals are you know spectacular, sure, but I found in comparison to the original, a lot of the lighting was just unmotivated. Like in the original Blade Runner, they would go out of their way to, oh, you know, to do this test, we need to be under these different lighting conditions. Do you mind if I do this? Okay, sure. Yeah. Walks over, changes the blinds. It, it completely, it's a complete motivation for the lighting switch. The same when like the, the flying cars, like shining a spotlight through mm. the abandoned building. There's motivations for all of those things happening. And in 2049, they just aren't. There's just light moving around for the sake of moving around. Yeah, and it, it's interesting because obviously, you know, it's like Denise Villeneuve and, yep. um, you know, it's 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 clearly mistakes or critiques that he's taken on and sort of catered to and, and managed with Dune. Sure. Um, to an extent. Um, like, there's not nearly those sort of... You don't have any of those problems in Dune. Um, yeah, but I think they're going to got safe. First off, I don't really have a Denis Villeneuve problem because most of his films I do like. You know, I do like Prisoners. I do like Arrival. And Dune, Dune is an adaptation. So as long as he didn't stray too far away from that adaptation, he wouldn't have been able to fall into those mistakes. But, you know, I guess he still could have. Mm-hmm. He could have made changes that lean more into the 2049 realm of things, I guess. Yeah, look, I don't know. I was, just, I was severely disappointed. But I have friends that, like, adore this film. Um, and I know you didn't dislike it as much as I did. It actually was the one I was debating between Supernova. Interesting. And Blade Runner 49. So I didn't dislike it as much as you, but I, I definitely do see the problems that you brought to the show. Sure. I, I found myself having similar problems. I think there was a greater emphasis on trying to build the world. Um, that's some of those technical... Th- or trying to make things look just tech- like colourful and... or, or like focusing on making the color palette put emphasis over things like motivated lighting and such. Sure. Yeah. Um, I do agree. I think it tackles very similar themes to the first film, but in a lesser sense, in a much bloated, chunkier way. Yeah. Didn't feel as there were very few innovations in it that I was like, Ooh, that's really cool. I liked seeing, um, the person who sort of creates the memories that the replicants end up having. Like, that was a really cool addition to it. It's a very, um, yeah, and it's, I, I think the, the plot, the way the plot's paced out is very clunky. Yeah, um, yeah. I will say, in in its defense, well, not in its defense, but in my, I guess, offense, however you want to claim it, I noticed this the other day. I think I have a big problem with sequels that, like, time jump really far in the future. Okay. Because I'm not a big fan of Blade Runner 2049. I didn't like Train Spotting 2 anywhere near as much as the first one. 
And also, I did not like Doctor Sleep compared to The Shining, which I know that's also a controversial opinion. So I think that's just a me thing. Sequels that jump like decades in the future, just I can't do it. That's interesting. I definitely think there is key distinctions between Trainspotting. I can't say anything about Doctor Sleep because I haven't seen it. Sure. But the train spotting one, that's that's an interesting one because I do think there are people that are actually on your side that don't really like the second film as much. Sure. But it's, I mean, it is comparing like a near perfect film to a, a sequel. It is a tough act to, it can be sometimes to have a sure. tough act to follow. But um, I, I think when, when you jump too far into the future, you, you make these characters several or decades of years older. I think, for, at least for me, I just have different expectations or maybe specific expectations. Yeah. And I, they always sort of fraught them, I guess. I think it's tricky because it's like... I think you're making... actually there is, a, there is a point in what you're trying to say there in the sense mm. that I think sometimes we fall victim to desperately wanting a sequel to things that probably don't need a sequel. Right, um, okay. And there, they could be quote... There could still quote be a story there. But... I think that there is that divisive thing where if we just wait too long for a sequel or it jumps 20, 30 years in the future and it's been 20 years since the previous film, yeah, our imaginations are always going to do more than what we get delivered with sure. a lot of the yeah. time. you know, And that goes from anything from Star Wars to The Hobbit, yep. whether it's yep. a director putting more emphasis on visual effects over physical effects and we hate that change or it's... Um, you know, quite simply, we've had 20 years to think about this story and the script's only been around for two, you know? It's like, and it's not because our imagination's always going to be more complex and larger than life compared to, I mean, when Phantom Menace came out, everyone thought it was a great film and then they allowed themselves to let it breathe for a bit, watched it and went, actually, there's a lot of problems with this film. It's not a very good film. It was almost the denial sense there and... I think Blade Runner, people wanted a sequel between all of Ridley Scott's cuts for mm. over the over the decades where he's doing different cuts and such. Yeah, you know? I mean, that drives me nuts as well, how many cuts of Blade Runner there are. Yeah. Um, and that could be a problem too because for the be- most part, one of the biggest positives I can give of that film is is it looks pretty at times mm. too. Um, yeah, and the fight sequences are quite, in- you know, they're choreographed quite well. Um, the visual side, they've definitely got the tone of the world correct. I think he's very good at constructing worlds um, in that creative sense. I think what he did with Dune's Immaculate um, and probably my favourite sci-fi film that come out of the last 10, 15 years. Wow. Yeah. Um, so it's, you know, it's. I think he definitely has uh, that essence down packed. But yeah, there was just a lot of bloated storytelling, I think, in 2049. Yeah, a lot of em- a lot of empty space in a two and a half hour opera. That's what it should have been, times. but yeah, it's all right. It wasn't the stale popcorn winner, and it is time for us to announce mm. that. But Zeke, what is the stale popcorn winner for twenty twenty one? The stale popcorn winner for twenty twenty one season three of the Cinema Star Show podcast was Annette. We love each other. So you'll notice I said opera and elected not 
to segue into it because I knew you really wanted to announce that yourself, Zeke. Yes. <laughs> you really wanted to announce Annette as the stale popcorn winner of 2021. Zeke, why Why is that? Why is it this film? Um, this is the first Adam Driver film I've not liked. Um, so this breaks my heart a little bit because mm. I feel like the... The driver renaissance has finally come to an end after <laughs> at least three consecutive years of loving him on this show. Um, you know, you know, Marriage Story was up on our lists the previous year. Um, you know, we're big fans of him. At, you know, in and outside of the show, and to be honest, it it just was a very confusing film that, for the most part, sort of what I would call quintessential like wanky art house films because <laughs> <laughs> it's kind of what the reaction we got after we walked away from it i know we went and saw it together mm, yes it was, we did it was another film that was quite long too i think it was two hours 10 minutes two hours 15 minutes it was quite quite long and this is the first the only film was it the only film this year you wanted to walk out of yeah well it's very rare for me to want to walk out of anything but yeah i generally had those feelings at some points where i was like i am so not invested in what's happening that i could just leave right now not that i was like offended or anything but it was like yeah i could leave and literally i was not engrossed i did not care what happened to this character or this character or this character now i think annette is a fascinating film Mm. i think there is there is so much to be rewarded on rewatches sure but i think fundamentally as, you know, the rock opera that it is, a very committed one, you know, for good or for bad, I think it is It is shockingly... Um, I don't want to use the word boring, but I was bored out of my mind watching yeah. scenes of this film. And, and it comes together really late, as in, like, you don't really know what the story is, what what's sort of the purpose of the things that are happening. Yeah, in- incoherence definitely... Um the thing that I, you know, and for a rock opera, it feels tone deaf at some times. So, because, <laughs> um, yeah, I think at least... I mean, we joke place, about the music all the time. Yeah, because and it's it's funny, you know, we talked about West Side Story a couple of weeks ago. Yeah. Obviously, a bit sa- you know, it's a safer bet, obviously. It's not, you're not going to pat Spielberg on the back for composing songs that have been around for 60 years. Yeah, you know? sure. It's like, but he obviously didn't try and do anything too different in that sense. We talked about it, discussed the difference on that show, but there is an art, you know, if you're doing a rock opera or a musical, song choices or song composition is a massive part of the way you review the film. Are the songs, uh, you know, not not necessarily, well, are they catchy to some extent that they live in your head and make you think about them? Do you want yeah. to... I, there, are certain, there are songs in here that I do authentically love, and yeah. the Sparks are a great band, mm-hmm. but, I mean, in terms of the way it serves the story. Yeah. It just doesn't. Because I I think if you, you know, go through your most iconic musical film moments, the song has to be in a, you know, in amalgamation to what the camera's doing, what the characters are doing, what does the song represent in the context of the story? And for the most part, we didn't even know really what the story was. It was an artistic couple that had a kid that was, a doll for a, some reason. Yeah, a doll for some puppet. reason. Because art. That was... And we mm. honestly sat here and we discussed it on the show. We were like, what does that represent? What does that mean? And I think if you have two guys, you know, and obviously some people, you can you can make meaning out of everything. We know that. But 
the fact of the matter is there wasn't really a reason or at least a coherently motivated reason mm. why they made that choice why Annette was this wooden doll really um yeah but i mean like that's the thing like we can sit there for hours and, and discuss and we did and i think we actually dissected this film to a really great extent i feel like but the fact that we did that and walked away still so unsure and, and so confused by this film even after having that discussion goes to show that, again it's that thing of we usually walk away liking films more and the fact that a film with this much to di- dissect and discuss we still didn't walk away mm. liking it more that's very interesting <laughs> it's a very tricky one because it's yeah i and you know i'm glad that you do enjoy some of the songs in this i can't say there really are any songs that really resonate with me in this film just the fir- like may we start maybe the first the very film. first one like that's fun um that's really catchy yeah and that's probably it because yeah. this also had one of my least favorite songs <laughs> um, which is barely a song yeah, it's, in and itself. What is it? Two characters. Was it? I'm so in love with you. Is that what it is? Or we're so in love. Where we are so in love. I'm trying to. What is it? Yeah, yeah something like something that. like that. It's and something, it's yeah. you know obviously it's, um you know they're singing it while making love and stuff like that. It's I'm like not just making love, Zeke. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's the most appropriate way of saying it. Um, but yeah, it's you know it's. And it's such a confused... It's a song that's repetitive and doesn't really have any motivation. And pretty much everything that the characters are thinking are in that one line. And it's repeated for four minutes straight. And we're like, oh, really? They're in love with each other. Again, a rock opera for better or worse. Yeah. That is what this movie is. Yeah. Um, The only real positive I really got out of this film is I do like Simon Halberg's performance. Um, Mm. uh, I think he's probably the most emotional gravitas and weight in the film there's a uh, great scene where the yeah the camera's rotating as he's conducting but then he yeah. has like that monologue while conducting and that's a that's a great like performative scene mm-hmm. i mean that was probably our both of our highlights yeah, I think it was, yeah um but but mostly it was just long-winded had about three different films going on mm. throughout its duration basically you know it's the the love affair sprouting into the birth of a child the child goes away for a period of time so you know marion colliard's character can get killed off basically only for you know um driver to come back and suddenly use his daughter as this muse to stay relevant or a managing and then she like confesses that her dad killed her killed her mum on like what a big Fifty thousand grandstand, the Super Bowl or whatever it <laughs> yeah. was, yeah. Very confused. I just, all which, I yeah, again, like we were really confused by the messaging of that, whether that was like super pro or super con, sort of coming out against your abuser, public announcement in terms of waiting on that announcement. Yeah, I think I think I came around to understanding what they were trying to do in the sense of like, you know, waiting until there's a big enough crowd that will actually listen to you. I mean, it's, I think it it's very tricky. Listen to the listen to the show because we do dissect it and, but yeah, I had no problem um, putting this in our like collective stale popcorn winner because, especially in the context of us seeing it together for this podcast, mm-hmm. and did we review it the day we saw it or was it the day after? I think it was the day after. Okay, so we had a little bit of time to think about it, but what a what an experience that was. Yeah. Well, <laughs> over to the positives, Jake. It is time for us to go into the main event. Uh, the Golden Jock, Golden Chuck Top, Golden Chuck Top Award. Yeah, very exciting. Is the award we give out to our favorite film of the week from the last year? Yeah, perfect. So it'll be the same structure. 
And mm-hmm. uh, of course, in the last two years running, we started with Once, the 2007 John Carney film. A strong musical film strong, in its own right. Yeah, exactly. There you go. Ticking off the musical award. And then, of course, last year was Baby Teeth, which yes. we are very, very proud of that film um, and love it to death. I'm yeah. proud because it's an Australian film, of course. So, Zeke, what is your third runner-up pick for the Choc Top or Golden Choc Top Award? So this was actually a really tough year. Um, yes, this was definitely harder than the last list we just did. Because <laughs> I came up with six and then have to had to narrow it down. Um, so I'm going to go with... Um, this is a toughie. I'm going to stick with my third runner-up as... Um, Emerald Fennell's Promising Young Woman. Interesting. Um, and this is just... The the first quarter of this year, I think the first, like, what, 13, 14 episodes, we just had power, most predominantly powerhouses. So um, this was a really tough list, but obviously Emerald Fennell's Promising Young Woman, I was just thoroughly entertained by it. And the reason I'm giving this a little bit more love than probably the other film that could sit in this third runner-up spot... Mm. is because it didn't win nearly as many awards as that film, but I'm hoping maybe you'll sneak into your list. Oh, yeah, I know what Uh, you're saying. um, But, yeah, obviously this was a fantastic film from uh, Emerald Fennell. Um, Writing was great. Carey Mulligan's performance was awesome. Mm. And it walked that really good line between really, you know, speaking out about, like we were saying, that that intergenerational trauma that was present in things like Last Night Soho, Yep. But um, obviously discussing it from more contemporary context, its use of Mr. X was fantastic. I think uh, almost every, literally every scene bar one was necessary and poignant and effective mm. in the way it sort of thought it was leading down one way and misdirect you another way. Big shout out to Bo Burnham's performance in it too, mm. which, you know, his special inside could also have gotten, a, you know, a mention in our appreciation yeah, award. Yeah, sure, definitely. Um, so... Yeah, I'm going to give third runner up to Promising Young Woman. Very interesting. Yeah, no, like I think I think it's a great film too. It's funny because um, when I think about all of those misdirects and and all of the sort of the trickery that the the script in particular does to, mm-hmm. and it did go on to win best screenplay, best original screenplay um, at the Academy in the last year. Um, I was sort of more mixed on those things, but it was good to talk it out on the podcast and have the yeah. discussion. And it is a really great film. I love recommending it to people. Now, can I ask, because this film is not on my list, was the other one you were referring to Nomadland? Yes. Yeah, I am shocked this did not make your list at all. Oh, it was a tough year. Yeah. It was a tough wow. Year. Crazy. It came in, it was honestly between the two, and it was. I literally wrote in my notes, pick on the show. <laughs> Just go with your gut. <laughs> pick on the day. Go with your gut <laughs> for that spot. Um, yeah, wow. it's a real shame, because it actually, I've got a poster of it sitting in my room. Very proud of it. Yep. Um, I think the only reason I didn't, go with Nomadland is it got a lot of love at the start of the year you know we talked about it yeah, thoroughly yeah absolutely and, sweep the directing and, and picture categories and you know Chloe Chloe Zhao in the latter parts of the year had a had a lukewarm with Eternals performance so according to other people it's so weird that yeah like that Nomadland which won best picture just this past year is not even her most recent film yeah, it's crazy. It's yeah. Very strange. So, um, gonna go with yeah. I had to opt for promising young woman on this one. Oh, um, but over enough. to you, Jake. Yeah. So my number three runner-up has to be, and again, this is sort of what you were talking about earlier in terms of um, sort of just a great discussion coming out of it. I was like, this needs to make it. Has to be Fallen Angels. 
which of course we did with Ricky as a guest star on the show. Um, what a what a fantastic exploration of of a film that is very. Um, I don't want to say vague. It's absolutely not vague. It's absolutely gorgeous stylistically, but there's a lot to dissect from it. There's a lot to yeah. dissect, and I think the three of us is having equally dry um, thoughts and reactions to it as all three of us sort of watching it in isolated um, sittings, I guess. I mean, we, me and Ricky actually watched it together on the same couch, but we were, like, dead silent the entire time. Mm-hmm. We were both committed to it. Let's not say a word until the mics are rolling and sure. all three of us together in that. I thought that conversation was absolutely amazing, so I have to give Fallen Angels a shout-out. And the film itself is just is absolutely spectacular, such a like a visual triumph of tone and just energy and i can't wait to watch it again seriously so that's my number three pick yeah from one foreign film to another my second round uh runner-up had to go to thomas vintenberg's mm. another round there you go um obviously in the previous week the hunt was on and we both felt great about that obviously you like that film more than another round compared to me sure um i just wrote another hunt on my document <laughs> <laughs> um yeah obviously this film Speaking of awards, did get him a direct, you know, best director nod and one best foreign picture. I can't. Not, that's incredible, best director nod. That came out of nowhere as well. Yeah, not that he doesn't deserve it. He's a brilliant director, but that was so it's random. A film I'm really looking forward to watching again, and it's sure. a film that I have been trying to get other people that aren't into foreign language pictures to watch, just because the sure. premise is so much fun mm. and we know we're counting the years before we get an english adaptation of this film probably an american they're doing version. an american one now see i think am i wrong is it leonardo dicaprio i could be wrong about this they absolutely it should be an australian remake a thousand percent well it's funny s- because like you know if you look into the drinking statistics yeah denmark's we're second to australia exactly australia's number one then it's denmark and which I find interesting. So, like, the most uh, people that get the most intoxicated in the world yearly is Australia, followed mm-hmm. by Denmark. And obviously, there's a big social commentary on drinking culture um, in that Danish film, obviously yep. starring Mads Mikkelsen. And particularly, like, the young drinking culture as well, like people still in high school. Yeah. Uh, which is very interesting. And you're right, just a great cast. 100% should fun. be an Australian film. Um, yeah, it's a great film. It's just so much fun. And. You know, it does definitely walk that nice line between the entertainment side and the more harsher realities of alcoholism. Um, and then, you know, sort of like the subject, you know, the like the ending is sort of more embracing, uh, supporting the embracing of a chaotic lifestyle. Mm-hmm. Lifestyle that has meaning and substance is more important than... Yeah, well, the idea of living in the moment, um, which very tragically um, came about because of his daughter passing away four days into production. Yeah. And, you know, as terrible as that is, it really did spawn the the ultimate theme and message of this film, is yeah. to live in the moment and, you know, sort of free in a lot of ways. And I have to say, my list for my golden, sort of golden chalk top, you know, top three, and then obviously the winner, are heavily influenced by the direction that each film took mm, um, and sure. what the director's choices were um, that led to strong actoral performances. That's definitely the through line I've identified with this year's sort of award emphasis. Yeah. Um, what about you, Jake? Yeah, so my number two runner-up choice uh, was mentioned earlier, and I don't really have much more to say than we've already talked about, but it has to be Nitram. Woo! So uh, it ended up in your appreciation list and it ended up in my golden chalk top list. 
um, yeah, it's a fantastic you know Australian film, but something that's very bold and, and tragic and, and really difficult to talk about and quantify, but this film does it, and I appreciate just the balls <laughs> for it to even do that. Um, but then again, you're right. I think we had a wonderful discussion about it um, after the fact, mm. and that I think Australia needs to make more bold films like this. That's really all I have more to say about Nit Ram, but that's my number two pick. Yeah. Um. All right, well... Jumping in, speaking of directors and strong directorial performances, my runner-up for the Golden Shock Top yes. um, has to go to Richard Linklater's Before Sunrise. Mine too. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's handy. There you go. That's a, so we've, what we have a movie. general consensus on one and two, yeah. then, technically. There you um, go. There's not much That's to... actually really interesting. Yeah. That you're going with Sunrise. Yeah, look... The reason I'm going to go with Sunrise is obviously it, it fell on a director's corner, so we got to talk, give a lot of love to Linklater's direction of and course, his diversity. Yeah. Um, but it's one of those things that we talked about on the Sunset Review. I do think I prefer Sunset as a film, but Sunset's mm-hmm. only as good as Sunrise. Sure. Um, it's a very much... Well, a, in, in the sense that it wouldn't have been as good as it is without what came before it. 100%. And the establishment. It's, the back, it's my Back to the Future 2 two towers like <laughs> empire strikes back you know it's the sequel i prefer the sequel to the original but yeah. the only reason i prefer that is because of how effective uh it is yeah so, exactly um yeah it's a fantastic film which is defined you know first and foremost by the, the direction but actoral performances yeah which is those two actors are just like the chemistry is absolutely impeccable between the two of them, especially at this young age. And again, I've always talked about, and I only saw this trilogy as a collective, you know, several months ago. And I know you, you've been watching them as we've been going from. Yeah. So you still to this day haven't seen, seen midnight. midnight. Um, but I'll, I will say it and I'll say it again. And I'll always say it that th- this is the way that this trilogy comes together as a full package is just absolutely mind boggling. Um, and to think that they did that with this film being like, oh, let's make this film. Yeah. They didn't plan for further entries in the, in the I hate to call it a franchise, but <laughs> I guess you could call it the before franchise as opposed to the before trilogy. But this film, yeah, it's a, it hits on such an emotional, authentic um, period of people in their sort of early to mid-20s, which of course is what you know we're at. I mean, we were both respectively 23 when we saw the this mm. film for the first time. And um, I think it hits home in a lot of ways, especially the the discussion of relationships and meeting people and how um, important those those meetings can be. With people. sure, um, I think that's the why this film had to go on here. Obviously, you know, with everything that's happened in the last year, even in the last two years, mm-hmm. um, it is really interesting to sort of look at a film that focuses on such a uh, an immersive experience in the sense that you feel like you could be either of these characters. Um, and or at least the ideologies of one of those characters, particularly your twenty three year old self, which mm. we all will become twenty three or were twenty three. Um, and if you can watch this film while being the age of the characters, that's like adds a whole different sort of immersive experience to it because you no longer have to dive into was that how I was or is that what I'm going to be? It's just it is what you are. Yeah, of um, course. Um, which which definitely plays into the future films in regards to places we're going to be and, and the relatability. You know, the films sort of slowly get further and further away from us in terms of relatability. But that doesn't Currently. Make, yeah. yeah, of course. But then, you know, we'll obviously be able to rewatch those films in years to come 
in relates to those aspects. And I think the fact that it, it is able to do that speaks to all three of them. But this one in particular, before summer, I mean, that's there's a reason I picked this one as well. You know, over Sun uh, Set, for example, which of course we reviewed as well, um, is that the way it crystallizes time on film. Yeah, and the way that we can relate to that is just—it's immaculate. And it speaks to the timelessness of the films, particularly Linklater's character pieces. You know, I've talked about things like Dazed and Confused, yep. and and Everybody Wants Some, and Boyhood on the show beforehand, and they have the same sort of effect. Obviously, that focuses predominantly on the masculine perspective, whereas this has a nice fifty-fifty down the middle sort of perspective. Yeah, they both get to have their voices. Um, heard and shared and there's definitely no bias there at all um which is probably why these films are better and more timeless because this film came out we're talking about this one which came out in 95 we weren't even born exactly at that point and yet we're still connecting to these characters now 26 27 years after this film was made um really goes to show that um and I think that that trend continues when they're 32 in the, the preceding film. Yep. Um, because, yeah, I imagine if I watch that when I'm 32, I'm going to have the same sort of, uh, at least share the ideologies of either, you know, um, you know, Delphi's character or, or Ethan Hawke's character. Yep. Yep. So. No, um, absolutely brilliant films. Look at that. I cannot wait to do Midnight in a couple of weeks. couple of weeks. Spoiler alert. So, Jake, it is time <laughs> for our Golden Chalk Talk winner what took home the coveted ice cream this year (laughs) (laughs) the golden chock top award winner for 2021 is the father No surprise there, is it, really? I don't know where to begin, man. (laughs) Um, This is easily out of the three, probably the three choices um, for this award. You know, it's obviously the third winner of it. Um, Probably the most emotionally heavy film or resonant, like, not resonant, probably the wrong word, but definitely the subject matters quite profound, but I would say... it's resonant in the sense that we've both dealt with you know, family members and people in our lives who've, who've gone, you know, with dementia and, and sort of had these experiences and we found it so relatable and it's great because I was, I remember when we did this podcast and I remember end, I wanted to end on that note of being like, I want to, you know, show this to my mum who, who is essentially the Olivia Coleman character in this. Um, 
you know, as a as a way for, I don't know if comfort's the right word, but it's like so that she knows that the battle she fought was strenuous and and really tough. And this film a thousand percent demonstrates that to a T. It has the perfect balance of, and obviously, um, big congratulations to Florian Zeller mm. for raking this out as the director. The directorial debut. You know, that's three directorial <laughs> debuts. Is it really? Oh my god! Can't, well, I, what is that? I don't was think it? I don't think once is his first film. I might but, double but check it, but at least it's back to back years. Yeah, between oh, Shannon that's Murphy. True. Yeah, because Baby Teeth would have been Shannon Murphy's directorial debut. Um, yeah, and it's probably worth noting that Florian Zeller, of course, was involved in the play beforehand, um, which I actually think Alfred Molina played the father in one of the renditions of the play, tying it back to Promising Young Woman. <laughs> But, of course, this is his first uh, feature film. Once was his second, so almost. But it's the first uh, in his musical trilogy. There you go. Exactly. Um, Close enough. Yeah, look, I think this, this film is very heartbreaking. We both had incredibly strong visceral reactions to it. Yeah, it's a really um, quite a profound conversation had on that episode. Um, and it sort of ties in a little bit more to our like why Supernova was a little bit more disappointing in the preceding week. I think what sure. this film does, and we, we did talk about it yeah. um, on the Supernova episode, what the difference was, because it was, you know, it's not fair to compare it, compare these things all the time. They but, are different takes on dementia, we should clarify. Yeah, but one we had seen before with the sort of the outside looking in perspective. Yes. This was unique in that it fully was about Hopkins' perspective, Anthony yep. Hopkins, the the father, if you will, um, perspective on it, and I think that's what created the. You know, we talked a little bit. We've talked a little bit about things like, obviously, you know, mental illnesses, um, and even like physical disabilities, like how Sound of Metal so effective because of its immersion into um, its character. And it's such a shame it didn't uh, make either. I'm of surprised this year, not in any of our. Um, but you know, it was a tough year. Um, so <laughs> There's a lot of great films, yeah. Uh, yeah, you know, it's obviously it's it's quite interesting, you know, how this one immerses you and and really slowly, surely breaks your heart over the course of its yeah. dizzying sort of sequential storytelling. Well, it's like you said, it puts you in the in the head in the, in that perspective, which you know is it's it, it completely changes your view on 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 everything in a lot of ways. It is authentically a film that does change the way you look at things. It changes your life. And, you know, the way they implement the production design with, like, the merging hallways of his flat, which turns into a hospital, which turns into, like, a, you know, a home care facility. Yeah. Facility is not the right word. Uh, but then the editing and how it sort of plays with these loops of conversations that we just can barely keep track of. It just, it all serves that key um, idea of yeah. putting you in this mindset. And, and it's terrifying. You know, it's it's a mixture between, like, say, Anthony Hopkins' performance, um, which is obviously the one that we both agreed on the show, that's the best performance we've ever seen from him. Um, mm. That is the one that's beaten his Hannibal Lecter, I reckon. Um, and that's that's no easy feat by any yeah. stretch. Um, and, uh, you know, it's obviously, you know, it's great with Olivia Coleman's performance and it's also quite strong, but obviously the most resonant is his. But it's a mixture of things like direction, art direction, editing is vital in the where to cut, yeah. how to cut, how to tell a cohesive story about an incohesive mindset. You yeah. know, it's, it's, yeah. um, and I think by the end, you're completely and utterly 
it's one thing to sympathize with a character that has a you know a, a like a memory degenerative uh disease or or you know has a yeah as a disability it's another thing to have like that full immersive empathetic experience yeah because a lot of films make you sympathize with them and that's good but what makes this great near per- nigh perfect is the fact that you are in his shoes mm-hmm. And I don't think you're ever going to get a film that is as effective as covering this particular mental illness ever again. Mm. I think it's very possible. Um, Instant classic. Yeah. And a ridiculous first attempt for <laughs> feature directing. So, <laughs> Well, he's now working on his second film called The Sun, uh, which obviously everyone's joking what the third film is going to make is called and the Holy Spirit. Yeah. <laughs> um, so we shall see. But I'm very excited to hear more from Florian Zeller and what an absolute brilliant film that I think is a perfect pick for the Golden Chock Top Award of 2021. There you go. Well, Jake, I guess we just better quickly move into what we've watched in the, the last week. The rest of week. the show. <laughs> Um, now that we've got all of our awards out of the way. My goodness. Jake, have you caught anything in the last week? Well, the only thing I've caught in the last week is Starlet, which is actually a Sean Baker film. Mm -hmm. So I'll quickly just go through it because I think it's out of the four that I've now seen between Starlet, Tangerine, Florida Project, of course, Film of the Week, Red Rocket is most certainly his most conventional film. Um, it feels a lot more like there's, you know, there's a, here's a script and all right, let's come together and hire some actors and make this thing. It still feels very authentic. It actually feels very sweet. Um, the color palette is like very. You this know, is the one on YouTube, right? correct? It is on YouTube. Um, so you can just. Sean, look up. you're such an OG. <laughs> come on the show. <laughs> come on the show. Uh, I reckon sure if anyone would come on a show anyone like would, this, yeah, probably would be someone like Sean Baker. <laughs> exactly. Um, no, it, it it's actually a really sweet film. Um, about the relationship between two women, one in their early 20s, one in their mid-80s. So there's a gigantic age gap there. But I kind of appreciate it because, like, you you know the Zeke, and, I, and a lot of people frankly make fun of me for this, but it's like I have a lot of friends that are anywhere between 20 and 50 years older than me. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I hang out with someone in their 70s almost every day, and it's like, yeah, he's sort of my boss, but it's like we have a very friendly relationship, and it's sort of validating to see a film like this going in depth into how um, really sweet a relationship like that can be with such a gigantic age gap between them and, and almost contra- contrasting that with the um, friends that this character has that are also in their 20s. Um, and it's sort of in this, you know, um, LA backdrop of, um, you know, going, going, kind of goes into like the sex working stuff, which mm-hmm. Red Rocket goes into too, um, from sort of from a different perspective. Um, but you know, when I look back on this film, I don't think about like the you know the very graphic sex scenes. I think about sort of the very sweet relationship that it owns, and I think it's very different from sort of the exploration of subcultures that Sean Baker goes on to do. Mm. Um, but I thought it was a great little um, twist in that way. But yeah, go on YouTube, look up Starlet. Um, it's a great film. I love it. That's yeah. all I've seen in the last week. Beautiful. Well. Um... <laughs> I haven't seen too much myself. I have started my latest sitcom or thing that I will be serializing, I guess. Ah, very nice. Um, nice. Tying into the early other. I've now finally, after many people telling me I should have already done this, started watching Scrubs. Ooh, Um, nice. Which, to be honest, is very entertaining and quite heavy, surprisingly quite emotionally potent. I imagine, obviously, being based in a hospital, this kind of has to have that 
gravitas to you know the life and death and how to deal with death of course, side yeah. of it. Um, wasn't expecting it to get as emotionally potent as early on in the show. I'm only ha- towards sure. the end of the first season, and already some pretty heavy he- episodes. Um, I've been told to watch everything up until the last season and not watch the last season. I will watch the oh, last yeah, season. Oh, yeah, okay, good. Not I was going to say, you, going can't, to, you can't take that advice. I'm not doing The Office when Michael Scott leaves, the show ends. Let's be real. Yeah, um, no, that, that's ridiculous. You know, I was re-watching an episode of The Office last night. It's uh, one of the... I think it's the one where Phyllis comes in as Santa. The first four minutes, there's no Michael Scott. And I was like, this is kind of an interesting little preview into what the show was like without him. Yeah. Because it goes four minutes without him appearing. It's interesting, but please go on. Yeah, um, so I've actually been really enjoying that. Um, so I'll, I'll keep that posted as that goes through. Yep. The only two films I watched tie into my Cobra Kai thoughts last week, obviously. Hey, season four came you did out. It. You did it. And I watched it all in a day. <laughs> <laughs> and um, yeah, look, obviously my Cobra Kai love has been potently respected over this, uh, exp- you know, shown over the show. Sure. As three of the seasons have come out while we've been making the show. Um, so I did watch Karate Kid 1 and 2, because mm. 3 is not on Netflix. You have to buy it on YouTube, and I'm not paying $5 for a film that has 15% on Rotten Tomatoes. <laughs> um, <laughs> not that I think Rotten Tomatoes is a very good grading curve, but if 15%... That's still, yeah, low score. That's a warning sign. That's a warning um, sign. <laughs> Look, to be honest, the first film's great. It's a classic sort of like... I can see why the film blew up in no, 1984 sure. and pretty much defined both Ralph Marchio and Billy Zapka's careers um, collectively and obviously was the key influence behind making the YouTube slash Netflix show. Second film has got a pretty lukewarm score on on, Net, uh, on Letterboxd, but I honestly found the second film pointless and boring, to be honest. Mm, it's quite long and... Really adds next to nothing. It's almost set. It's set six months after the events of the first film, and they go to Okinawa where Mr. Miyagi's from, and it just ends up being like this weird sort of. It honestly is the equivalent of probably Spider-Man: Far From Home. That's sort of like <laughs> they go abroad and they they go and it's a teenager trying to be a teenager, but no, it doesn't have wow, nearly as much uh, f- enjoyable fun as the first one. The first film is hokey fun. It doesn't hold a candle to things like Back to the Future. I'm sorry. Sure. It just doesn't. Um, and it definitely feels... The first film especially feels like the PG version of Rocky. Mm. Version. Okay. Um, <laughs> PG so. version. Right? Rocky's pretty... Is Rocky that violent? It's M, I think. Yeah, okay. When people get hit in the face. So yeah, I guess so. Yeah. yeah I've only seen it once. So yeah. I'm trying to remember if but, it's violent. Um, yeah, it definitely feels like the teenage version of that. Okay, I got but, you, I got you. Um, compared the real- to the fight choreography in the show now, because I know that they explicitly, for a lot of the, the the young child actors that play in Cobra Kai, a lot of their big pushing points were they actually had to learn proper karate and made mm. the choreography. It was a big part of their casting okay. over their acting ability, which they've grown into, obviously, the older they've got to. Sure. Um, so it's... It, whereas these... This was more a traditional Hollywood, so you know it's you know it's a bit clunkier. So the real question is: Are you going to watch the Jaden Smith version? I am actually going because I really, you, <laughs> you know, really should. I'm just going to watch all of them eventually. There's a Hillary Swank one. Yes, there is. It's apparently the worst out of all of them. Oh no! So I'm going to get through them all, whether they turn into drink to cringes now, um, which is a very good chance. What is the? Le- <coughs> Excuse me. What is the, the letterbox? Two point one. For the Hillary Swank one. No, I'm I'm thinking of the Jaden Smith one, the 2010 version. 
And they don't even do karate. They do kung fu. Okay, it's 2.8, so it's not great. But I... I mean, I was a kid. This is 2010, so I would have been like 12, 13 when I saw yeah. this. I remember loving this film, but it might not hold up in the same way. I'm happy to admit that that's a possibility. Yeah, the, the one-star review, it's not even karate, you twats. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. Um, yes, yeah, yeah, so that's all. I, that's all. Uh, that's all I got for this week. Nothing mm. too crazy. I'm hoping fair to enough. continue watching some of the new ones that are getting released out on streaming platforms in the next week. Yeah, um, fingers crossed. But until then, I think we have to move finally into our <laughs> film of the week. We got there in the end, Zeke. Um, you don't want to add anything quickly into career bits before we? Uh, I was going to, but we are going quite long, and I think next week. There'll be plenty more to talk about. I'm going on the shoot this week. There we go. Well, we'll get a bit of the goss next week exactly, on the show. Exactly. And until then, it's time for us to go into our film of the week. But Jake, what are we watching? This week on the show, Zeke, we're watching Red Rocket. Pachoo! I'm doing this tonight. You're probably going to start a fight. What's your name? Everybody calls me Strawberry. You're like an extraterrestrial around here. Don't fuck with me. Not. I love you. Where were you? This cute little town called None of Your Fucking Business, Texas. Hope you had a good fucking time. Now it's time to leave. I think it's cool. You just said, fuck it. I'm going to get paid for doing the thing I love most. And as long as you're not hurting anybody, you can you, man. I'm not afraid to fight you. I don't give a fuck. What the fuck? He fucker punched me. I would 100% out cardio that guy. Fuck. Sorry for swearing. The shit got out of control. I came this fucking close to getting shot. This fucking close. The dog's like, oh, he's a good man. I can tell by his nice energy. Your persona, non grata. Life's sweet, Sophie. Life is sweet. After leaving Los Angeles, ex-porn star Mikey Saber decides to crawl back to his hometown of Texas City, where his estranged wife and mother-in-law are living. Just as this dysfunctional family seems to be making things work, Mikey meets a young woman named Strawberry working the cash register at the local donut shop. Oh, that was a clunky letterbox. Ah, Strawberry, Strawberry. Oh, boy. Um, All right. (laughs) So I've just I have just come out from this film about three four hours ago. Um, Very nice. Yeah, I saw this uh, Saturday night, and you you'd be proud of me, Zeke. I accidentally booked the outdoor screening for this, and I really enjoyed it at um Leaderville. At yeah, at Leaderville, the outdoor version. Was I, it? I went. Nice? It was great. I had a great time. I will take back what I said about outdoor screenings. Oh, I, it was, I love them. It was an enclosed like. It wasn't like a giant oval, though. It was like a very enclosed, small space. So I think that helped a lot. Oh, I love it. Would you recommend going there? Sure. I would. The, yeah. Especially the Lunar one, because I, I particularly like that one. Especially f- uh, for films about ex-porn stars. Well, you know what? This was actually a great film for it, because you have the breeze in your face. It's nighttime, and then this is a very outdoorsy film in a lot of ways. Yeah, I could I could actually concur with that. Yeah, um, um, yeah look, this is a... This is an interesting film. Mm. Well, um, yeah, what is your... Obviously, you're a huge fan of Florida Project. I imagine you didn't catch really any of the other Sean yeah, Baker not, films. not yet, unfortunately. Um, 
So how did this sort of compare um, in particular to the Florida Project? Uh, I didn't enjoy it as much as the Florida Project, but the Project okay. Florida, to be in the defense of this film, sure. the Florida Project is a fantastic film. Um, mm. uh, you know, we talked about it a lot last week on the show. Um, I have a feeling when I get to Tangerine and, and uh, Starlet, it's still going to sit number one. Yeah, it's um, still my favorite of his films. Um, not that every other film that he has made is very interesting for other reasons, but I think the Florida Project, it breaks your heart in a way you're not expecting. Yeah. Um, and in this film, it's definitely less personable. I found it, and I kind of teased it a little earlier when you asked whether I put this on my 1100 films poster you have to watch. Mm. Um, it feels a little messier and a little less confident than The Florida Project. There's a lot more themes and visual echoes and iconography and lots of ideas that felt like I had to kind of mm. work harder to tie together. When the film ends, I walked. In, I saw it with my friend Mel. We kind of looked at each other and be like, what? what do we make of this? And we had a quick discussion and it all really came into place quickly for me, but it felt like there were... The, I'll let you go first. What, what do you think the film's ultimately saying about the character, about, I guess, Mikey, um, as well as, I guess, America? There's a lot of American flag iconography, a lot of references to Trump and sort of the impersonation of the military. There's a lot in here about I think it's that. interesting because it's sort of... What what this film does can in comparison to sort of and I, I do think it actually ties really well with the Florida Project because it's sort of mm. discussing the people that are scraping the bottom line, um, these people that live in in rural or industrial based areas that are really just um, for the most part they like obviously this has a nice relationship between the middle class and the lower middle class. Mm. Um, Obviously, Mikey's character very much has at least lived a life where he has been in almost every different class, um, mm. you know. And it almost feels like um, the film that I was discussing earlier in the show that I was alluding to, at least, is a Paul, you know, the Paul Thomas Anderson film, Boogie Nights, oh, um, which centres around of the adult film industry and particularly following Mark Wahlberg's uh, meteoric rise and fall as a adult film actor. Sure. And obviously, Wahlberg's character is significantly younger, but that what that film does well, what PTA covers, is he covers the different generations of adult film mm. stars and sort of how Wahlberg and his female counterpart, who I'm missing, I can't remember her name, but she wears, obviously, rollerblades throughout the film. Yeah. Roll skates. She's a teenager, and obviously... The teenage absorption into this industry is a huge um, center point of this film, um, like the slow illusion of stardom right. and yeah. fame. Yeah. Um, and it definitely addresses it less through the glitter glam style, like um, PTA does. But obviously, that does swing both ways. PTA does the rise and the fall, whereas this is more just sort of like a person coercing someone into a a, a grimier lifestyle, robbing purity, if you will, mm. um, in essence. And I honestly think uh, the character of Mike Saber is the biggest uh, piece of crap I have ever... <laughs> I have ever witnessed yeah, in a he's, film. He's a shithead. Um, he he legitimately is. has no redeeming quality from mm. start to finish. So, you know, we talk about Florida Project last week on the show... Um, 
you know, um, Haley. Is it Haley? I think it's Haley. Yeah, Haley and, and does daughter Mooney. And, and Mooney, obviously her daughter. Um, Haley does have redeeming qualities. Mm. Um, I will say really quickly because I did mention last week I only had time to rewatch the first half of the film, and I kind of did defend her as being as someone like you don't really judge as much. I did forget about the scene where she throws a <laughs> a very particular item on the on the window. And I was like, oh man, I forgot about that, and I forgot about yeah, her beating the look, crap out of a neighbor. <laughs> yeah, it's true. Um, but I think that there's a a sense of you know, the, the one difference between Haley's immaturity sure. is Haley is basically the result of what Strawberry is precursor to in an extent, um, or mm. you know, um, okay, and that transition of of sort of. Uh, you know, or at least in this in this instance, it's the comparisons between the characters of, of Strawberry and one problem oh, Lexi. With one of my t- one of my t- yeah, Lexi. Yeah, there's a lot of parallels to be made there. Um, what's interesting, because yeah, the film obviously goes very deep in, into those relationships and especially that industry and the way that Mikey's sort of indoctrinating, you know, this young underage girl into this world and sort of trying to but entice it's, her. It's all about self-preservation. This is what this... Well, yeah, it's about selfishness. And I think this is where all the American iconography ties in. For me, I think I kind of... This is how I figured it out. Is it? it it's almost about the inherent cyclical destruction of chasing the American dream. I and in, in this case, the American totally dream... Totally agree with that. Yeah, being this industry, sort of this porno industry that, that he comes from or that he, that he is from or, or joins earlier... Um, and how he leaves a path of destruction everywhere he goes. He begins, and I guess we're going to jump into sort of spoiler territory pretty early on. I, I recommend this film. I think it's great. It's very interesting. Yeah, I mean, it's something, yeah. it's, it's something different. Yeah. I'm not sure I'd recommend this to everyone. Sure, sure. Um, I think It's that, vulgar in places, yeah. Yeah, and I think the subject matter is, I honestly felt quite uncomfortable and mm. times quite sickly. Um. And I think that comes back to the grounded realism and, and believability that Baker conveys in his films, that he somehow walks this weird line, um, particularly, obviously, it's mostly pre- present in the climaxes of his film, the final, um, you know, like the the epilogues in his films. Yep. But um, how he walks that line between realism and surrealism is, is fascinating mm, sometimes. Particularly in Florida Project and, and this one. Yeah. Um, very fantastical endings. Yes. Whether you, you're not quite sure how real they are necessarily. But yeah. to jump into that spoiler aspect, he starts the film the way he ends. He's bruised and beaten and running back to a, a town of familiarity, begging to be accepted back into that community. And he ends the film running in the complete other direction leaving nothing but chaos and destruction in Texas. You know, his friend is in jail. Um, you know, his, his wife and, and stepmother and sort mm. of the, the community he builds in terms of the drug dealing and all of that. They're all booting him out. Get out of here. We never want to see you again. Um, it's about that sort of a cycle there. And it's it's just leaving a path of destruction. Behind. That's why he's a selfish piece of shit. <laughs> yeah. It's because he does this almost unashamedly. I think the... Why I don't think this film is, is as strong or even as, as potent as something like The Florida Project mm-hmm. is, um, I th- I think that he doesn't really learn. There is no, like... He doesn't o- learn anything. He doesn't learn anything, and there's no real character arc. And, you know, you don't always have to have the traditional character arc or hero's journey and such, because the only thing that... 
you know, if anything, the character art comes from a character like Strawberry. Like, she's the one who actually really undergoes change mm. or um, for for worse, really. But um, the fact of the matter is it's... He is he's horrible from the start all the way to the to the end. He's a snivelling rat of a person, really, um, who is just doing anything to basically, you know, churn the butter and make uh, make butter and get out of that uh, that barrel, right? From well, a yeah, well, well, he's very determined in his own goals of yeah of self preservation. And when he's begging and pleading, you know, his yeah. wife and his and his stepmother, you know, to let him in, and he goes that extra mile, you know, to do the dishes, mow the lawn, you know, buy them, you know, large coffees and all of that. But as soon the second that he sees Strawberry, completely, his trajectory completely changes, and he's yeah. back into that mindset that is probably something he was. We assume he was imbued in, you know, in that LA lifestyle, and that's something that when he's talking to his friend Lonnie. That's when all the sexist remark comes in. He starts talking about women and sex and in such wildly different ways. But it's always about and, him and whenever yes. and his achievements or the things that he fell short of in life were always political or they always favoured him. There wasn't a single point in which he ever thought he ever acknowledged problems with himself. Mm. And it's what makes his his character unredeemable as a person. And sure. He does, I mean, he does get some form of comeuppance when he has to, like, when he's finally victored out of, you know, the house that he's squatting in, essentially. Yeah. Um, and he has to, has to run rampantly naked throughout the streets. <laughs> um, that got such a funny reaction from our crowd. And, I mean, Because all... you're sort of half into... I was with Sean Baker. I was like, I, I expect to see some penises in this film. And they really, they literally pan to it in one of the shots. Yeah. They're like, here you go. And I, I, love I, can, I can respect that because it, it turns out that, you know, I mean, and this film doesn't shy away from voyeurism or the male gaze, yeah. but it also completely and utterly destroys any semblance that this man has any positive masculine traits. Mm. Um, he is through and through a toxic male. Um, and he's meant to be. And I, I do think that your parallels with... This is basically an anecdote for the desperate plea for the or the selfish intent behind the American dream to an yeah. extent um, and pursuit for not necessarily even materialistic wealth, but um, ideological fame values mm. and, and such. Yeah. And it is the pure obsession with oneself going too far. And that's definitely paralleled to the over patriotism of American. Like yeah, the American idea, um, you know, because it's all about how people perceive him throughout the entire film. Mm. Whether he's at first when he's trying to prove himself to Lexi and his and his mother and her mother, um, it's all about oh he's he's paying the bills, he's fixing up the house, he's doing all those man things mm. that because um, there's not a man around the house, you need a man around the house. Oh, I'm here for protection. Like he goes that route, and then yep. with. You know, with Strawberry, he's trying to be more sensitive and charming, but at the same time, he's he's got the selfish intent of alluring her into the adult film industry because he wants to give his career another couple of years. Yeah. You know, yeah. Or he's transforming from being an on-screen actor to an off-air talent because he can bring these girls in because he thinks he's the the messiah of that industry too. And really all that is is just that self-preservation, that selfish intent. Yeah. Um, and it's interesting because this was one of the things that I was thinking about as well, is that 
particular shot of him mowing the lawn. This is, you know, still in the first act quite early on. But when he's when he's sort of settling into a life that can be in Texas, where he settles down, you know, with Lexi, who eventually does start to open up to him. And we sort of see it visually as he tries to get into sneak into the bedroom and eventually she lets him in. They sort of start having sex again. And, of course, that's flipped when he basically just steals the bed from her in, the, in one of the last scenes. Um, but there's almost like an image there of not necessarily the nuclear family, but there with obviously sort of the industrial visuals in the back, almost every single exterior shot, you can just see the the smoke and the plants and all of that in the background just seeping in every single shot. Um, I think there's almost like a hint there of this is what could be, you know, a simple, quieter life. And again, what once he gets that hint and, you know, we've seen Strawberry and he's back in the LA game. Mm. He's back into that business mindset like, oh, let's chase you know, the capitalistic idea of the American dream, you know, to improve myself and my business and my worth and my awards, which again, going back to your idea of him being a very selfish person, all of his awards come from, let's call them acts, Mm. acts that everyone's like, well, you didn't do any work in that. (laughs) She did all the work in that and he can't accept that. Yeah, because his ego is there. Yeah. I actually am going to point out this letterbox comment. It is a comedic comment, but honestly was a thought that through my watch time, I thought about this. And oh, it's okay. hilarious. This is this movie is like a GTA cutscene in the best possible way. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm not gonna lie, there were distinct moments where I thought I was with like the Trevor part of GTA Five, <laughs> especially but like Trevor? his relation his relationship with yeah. Lottie is particularly <laughs> kind of Trevor dynamic. Obviously, yeah, he's way is. more attractive than Trevor. Yeah, but the way he talked with that sort of neurotic boastfulness that's funny and Lottie is this <laughs> character that's just such a yes man simple character yeah who you know obviously is completely I think it's Ron it's Ron in GTA 5 that's him yeah like the Lonnie but character but the dynamic is always there was moments where they're just driving down like and it's just the flat terrain it's like I was like <laughs> this basically is just GTA 5 the, uh, that's really funny yeah <laughs> the movie because you know it has the same level of like especially their dialogue that's like at times it's just disgusting like the way that they're talking like you said the way they talk about women or his perception of it and and how he's so entitled and yet the reality is he's squatting at his ex's house and selling weed to teenagers yeah and hitting on underage girls so he really he's Honestly, I think he is, if not the most deplorable on-screen character I think I've ever seen in film. He's up there. He'd be up there. Yeah, that's crazy. At least least in the term of contemporary believability. I was going to say, like, obviously you have, like, super villains. Yeah, you've got the alien from Jimmy I'd like to put the asterisk, like, yeah, the contemporary, like, I believe this this type of person could exist in real life. Yeah, you would never, ever want to be friends with with, um, Mikey. Yeah. Mikey Saber. <laughs> no, you'd want to punch him. And to be fair, he does get multiple times where he is openly embarrassed. So there is that nice balance that he's not just this person that gets away with everything. He's a well-rounded person, but it, it's the, again, it's the inherent selfishness and the fact that his environment, a very patriotic environment, encourages that in a lot of ways. I think that is because I remember when, when they have the Trump campaign speeches, and this is 2016, obviously it being a red state. I was like, okay, mm. this is interesting. They're doing some... Trump parallels, and I was a little—I was relieved that it wasn't overt. But I think the idea is that that's where the encouragement comes from. That is the encouragement of chasing. The fact, the fact of the matter is, the man yourself. got elected president. There was the made the majority demographic liked him. Yeah. So you know, and people were like, and that's why I don't like things like "Don't Look Up" because they're trying to mm, okay. degrade 
the fact is it's their system played out a certain way and yeah like you said this is Sean Baker understanding the, the, the contemporary quite. This is the lowest socioeconomic class. This was the predominant demographic for his voting and stuff. And yeah, like you said, it wasn't overt. They were just watching. And there, might then, have, there was a then, quiet acceptance and nod there. Sure. But then we're calling him one of the most deplorable sort of grounded characters yeah. we've ever seen in the film. I think that... Now, I'm not. I'm not trying to make a political statement here. To be fair, I, Jonah Hill's character in Don't Look Up is up there. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, look, I think it, it definitely is not toning too much into that political side of it. No. Um, I I definitely appreciate what it's trying to do. And I know people have problems with... Uh, was it, it wasn't Nomadland, was it? That people... Was it Nomadland that people had an issue? Like, oh, you know, would, would, these, are the, these are the people that voted for Trump. We shouldn't like this movie. I think that was Nomadland. People complained. Yeah. About, which is, that's a, I'm sorry. That's a silly complaint. Yeah. You know. Um, but to go even to go into... Again, it's about the selfishness. When Lonnie impersonates being someone who served and it gets abused at the mall, mm-hmm. like Mickey lashes out Mickey. I keep calling him Mickey. Mikey. Mikey lashes out at him, but not because he's of any, like, you know, anti-patriotism thing that he's doing. It's how bad it's going to make him look. What if I'm seen associated with you? And the very next scene, what does he do? He's attacking a teenager saying, she's my girlfriend now. You get out of here. He's attacking Nash. And it's like... You don't care about self-image. You're just selfish. Yeah. So there's plenty, plenty of examples of him being that way. I would love to talk for for a moment, Zeke, for a brief little moment. Just a brief moment. Just a brief little moment. I love to talk about Strawberry. So fascinating character. Um, I want to quickly get it. She's played by Susanna's son, who I think is primarily like a model. I think this is probably one of her first acting credits. Um, she's fantastic, and I think. This was interesting because this is again another thing I had a conversation with. Um, with the only other film she's billed for is called Secret Escort. Mm. Interesting title right off the bat. <laughs> I think, and and it was interesting talking to someone like Mel about this as we walked out. You know, she's someone. She's a very sex positive person. She's actually sure. kind of, you know doing sexology as part of uh, one of her future courses in in psychiatry. So, yeah, uh, great person to talk to about some of the themes in this film. And one of the things we talked about was. Well, the character of Strawberry, who's, you know, young, she's 17, very flirtatious. She's sort of open about, you know, I'm attracted to older men. She essentially says that. Mm-hmm. Um, and I guess my question to you, would, do you think this film, or even the script, or whatever you want to call it, would this narrative work better if she was sort of less passive and more one way or the other, in the sense that when she's taken to the strip club... She's intrigued, but she's not, like, completely infatuated. She's not completely disgusted by the idea either. She's kind of passive and goes with the flow. Do you think it would have been a better narrative if she was one or the other? Okay. Um, probably, I'm going to say no. Mm. So, I think her character's really interesting because you want to like her character from the start. Sure. Likeability is a huge part of her because, you know, she's charismatic and like you said, she's sex positive and, and, and she's definitely very comfortable with herself. Yes. And wants what she wants. But there's that, that's definitely a very present and it's meant to be there underlying layer of, of naivete, Mm. um, which makes Mikey's intention and, his slow corruption of her, or at least attemptive corruption, 
um, all the more um, more deplorable and and icky and uncomfortable. Mm. Um, and I do think that uncomfortability is one hundred percent meant to be there. If you walk in, the, if you're uncomfortable by this film, I don't blame you. I was like yeah. for a good period of the time, and I think that scene, if you're taking the when he takes her to, to a strip club, it, it sure. yeah, it speaks a lot about her naive curiosity because yeah. she's never been to a strip you know, club before. She doesn't understand how this sort of world works. Yeah, of course. And and there's definitely that, um, there's some really well-written lines in there, which I quite like. One of my favorite lines is when they're sitting in the car, spooning together. And, and she says, Oh, like, you know, um, Mikey asks, what's her, uh, what's your type? And she's like, I'm yep. into men, not boys. Yep, that's um, it, yeah. And it's a very, look, it's a bit of a, little bit of a cliche sort of go-to line, but it's also, it's, when that's I say, po- but she's probably doing that in a self-aware yeah, I would, manner. I would like yeah. to say it's, it's only cliche because that's something that someone who was 17, who's dating a 40 year, year mm. old would say. Right. A hundred percent. Cause it's, it's kind of like, okay, yeah, cool. That's yeah. what they think is sexy. That's yeah, what they exactly. Sexy. Yeah. Um, and it's interesting because I think this film does, um, we haven't really touched on it, and I do think this plays into the strawberry character, is the sort of um, the desensitization of things like pornography mm. um, and how that affects sort of generational psychology. And we definitely see at the start of the film the negative effects that his choices as a youth and his career choices have on him trying to get employed in small town jobs and that would probably be a wide scope thing that's why he's on a bus beaten and bruised coming to this this like his rundown hometown why Mm. he ends the film exiting with a bag of clothes that are in a trash bag you know this character is like this is all he that's the only career he can do so when he meets strawberry the obsession comes back to that's his way back in yeah. to the only real industry he gets any semblance of wealth materialism uh, success um and i think it's really interesting sort of the the reaction the different reactions we get from the older more mature characters who are like sorry i can't employ you because of sort of your your career choices it wouldn't be good for our image as a business and such yeah and, well it's always like my boss wouldn't allow this whereas for her yeah. she's a 17 year old who is fascinated by it or attracted to it because you know and there's definitely subtext in there to show like that overexposure that you know teenagers have to paraphernalia and such like that and how mm. that has really you know has an ideological you know she goes on and tells this anecdote about how well, she you know sent a nude and got paid for it um and that's a huge part of contemporary culture that's a big discussion point about yeah. being ethically you know unethical and wrong and well I, it it's interesting because we live in a world today, and again, the sex place in 2016, but it wasn't that long ago. It was five years ago. Five, but, six years ago. Yeah, exactly. But, you know, in a world where OnlyFans has exploded in the last year or two, and a lot of women are, in by, by I, I would say, uh, I don't want to say the public, in, okay, in sense of employment opportunities are very much the same in that, you know, there are many stories out there of, like, people who work, um, you know, as caretakers or as part of hospitals, getting fired because they have an OnlyFans account. So there's still an employment angle. There's still that side of it. But from a, a general public consensus, I think it's, it's very much celebrated these days that women are using their bodies uh, to capitalize yeah. on them. 
And I think what's interesting, because like you said, it's like a, from a youthful standpoint, people growing up in this world now, and, and yeah, it's like, let's celebrate this and let's make, you know, I'm going to make money for this mm-hmm. um, by sexualizing myself and putting my body out there. And now I have, you know, this older guy who's, you know, 17 years in the, in the porno industry and he's saying I'm I'm the prettiest looking girl that he's ever seen. I think there is a side of her passiveness, the you know, her going with the flow that not only is sort of what causes her to go in this direction, but it's probably why Mikey's attracted to her in the first place, mm-hmm. um, as well as her looks. Yeah, that's fair. And I think that's... It's just very interesting to go in that. And, and again, I think... I said this about the Florida Project. I think there isn't so much judgment that this film's making. There's definitely a sense of... We walk away being like, this character sucks. We do not like this character very much. Yeah, um, I think you're okay to not like that character. Yeah, no, absolutely. I, I think the idea is that you're meant to like this character, but I think it's it's criticizing the world that these characters are imbued in. Mm-hmm. I don't know if it's saying anything negative about women who, um, you know, sexualize themselves and, and profit off of that. I don't think it's saying anything one way or the other about it. I think it's saying because we're now in a world that is celebrated, we're having people grow up in, in you know, into this new industry, I suppose. Now... I guess you could say this leads to the ending and we can get into cinematography and all that stuff as well. Um, what was your takeaway with the ending? Obviously, he's you know kicked out, used and abused and, or beaten. Rather, he's bruised all up in his body. He walks to her house where now the skies are all clear blue. There's no industrial imagery. She walks out in a bikini with the hair blowing and the music blasting and that's the mm-hmm. ending of the film. Now, I was not expecting the ending to be so... What's the word? I mean, after Florida Project, I was kind of expect I, I wanted to cry at the end. And I guess I should have known this wasn't going to be the kind of film that made me cry at the end. No. It was very much, okay, it's leading in this direction. What's your takeaway from that sort of surrealistic ending? I just thought he was going to die by the end. It was like oh, a good, there was oh a my period goodness. time I think he was going to get killed. Like the, the, And I think that there is that misdirect there. Mm. Like when Oh, when they're to, looking at each other yeah. and they kind of zoom into their faces. And it's very clear like... <laughs> That's a great scene. And you want to... To be honest, you want to strangle him by the end. Like, sure, that whole yeah. sequence, just... I, I don't want to go too tangential, but that sequence with Lexi when he says that he's leaving, and it's just that uncomfortable one-way conversation. Yeah, he's the, talking himself into a, a grave. <laughs> just so uncomfortable. It's like, that's how you do it, Malcolm and Marie. Um, but, um... Yeah, Malcolm and Marie, she would just yell back 20 times during that monologue. Yeah. But, um... I think what I take from that is is definitely the sort of tunnel vision intent mm. um, and sort of the... It's a tricky... I'm honestly... I'm a little... Probably would take a little time to process that ending a little sure. bit. But it, my, my guttural reaction is, yeah, it's that tunnel tend. I mean, he started the movie where he ended outside someone's house kind of looking for some sense of of self-preservation. Mm. And at first yep. it was just living with his ex-wife and getting by. And now he sees this as the intent. Like he's going to, you know, it's it, at this point it's pretty apparent. He's just going to use and abuse this girl to keep him treading water mm. for a, another period of time. Um, you know, and his conversations with Lonnie are, are very present of that. How quick like girls fall in and out of the industry. And, Sort of how, you know, it's like, oh, well, she's over there. Well, I'm over here doing stuff, you know. Um, and I think that that ending really was just to in 
sort of honestly, you know, really foreign home, the, 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 I think the voyeuristic side and the, the scope of Felix side and, and really kind of give you that sort of icky, like, whereas Florida project makes you very upset and quite like profoundly stirred one way. Yep. This does it too, but I, I think it's more in an, an icky, sickly sense. Like he mm. might, he's probably going to get his way. Because he always seems well, to, one way or another, yeah. kind of get his way. Yeah, sure, he, he does have bumps along the way, but he did manage to sling, uh, like slug his way into um, his ex's house after starting the film, chased off the property and being threatened to call the cops. You know. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, for me, that's very much... That final shot is telling me he's not going to learn his lesson. You know, because no. he's so infatuated by this thing that's in front of him. He's not looking back at the destruction he's caused, the lives that he's... I wouldn't say necessarily... The, he yeah. ruined Lonnie's life, for sure. He's in jail. <laughs> but, yeah, and no, I think but he ruined he's, Lexi's he, life to an extent, too, because he took a... Well, he took advantage of her and the stepmom and, and the locals and everyone. And past transgressions, too. And Even... And, and Mel had to point this out to me. I didn't realise. When he walks out the front yard and he sees the reporter reporting on you know the pileup that happens, that's the neighbour that put the shotgun on him. I did not realise that. Until she pointed it out. Oh, really? Yeah. We thought, yeah. oh, that's really fascinating. Which to me is like, okay, this is another sign. He can't even step out the front door without bumping into someone he's caused trouble with or, you know, nearly got threatened to get shot with a shotgun. Yeah. <laughs> so to me, that ending is like, he's not going to learn his lesson. He's forward, on to the next thing, on to the next thing, on to the next thing. I really think his character is quite simply just a vessel for sort of the the viral infection that sort of greed and self-absorption can have on people's lives Mm. um and it's probably you know there's probably a socio-economic tie there with the the american dream or even to an extent the the australian dream like the obsession people have to have that materialistic wealth to be off the bottom they're willing to push eight nine different push other people's lives further down just so they can get further up you know Mm. he's willing to ruin an entire girl's life to stay in the industry that he chose to go into for another couple of years to live that lifestyle he's been living in California. Um, And I think that that's at the core of this. And we see through characters like Lexi, we see the legacy of damage that that causes. You know, Lexi is a, is a drug addict and um, is quite, you know, quite sickly and sitting on the bottom and claiming pensions. She has a son she can't see Mm. from another partner um, who hasn't? He has a non-existent father, so she's incapable of fulfilling the the that maternal uh, void in her life. Her mother is is quite sickly and and also and and is basically just wanting to make sure her daughter doesn't push herself over the edge. By yeah, letting well, she has that speech with with Mikey of you know don't do what you did to her. In which he deflects. He yeah. just deflects it. He doesn't take accountability or gravitas or weight. He basically just agrees to get her off her back. Yeah, I will. I will quickly say not not a correction, but but just to, I think clarify the point is, as in ruining her life by taking her into this industry, not necessarily because she wouldn't enjoy being a part of the uh, industry, but because of you know we see the parallel to Lexi and the and the effect that he, as in Mikey the person, had on her as a yeah. person. Not so much the industry in and of itself, which I think this film doesn't comment on too much. It comments on the male perception of that industry. That's true. But it, it, to 
place on that. He's been in the industry for 20 years. I think the industry itself has probably undergone significantly significant changes in the last 20 years. And mm. there is an ugly side to this industry. Um, sure, yeah. But I think, um, you know, we mentioned Boogie Nights earlier, and I think that's that that film has wonderful examples of the positive sides of, of the industry. And it's like neither of us really know it that well. <laughs> We're not in that industry. <laughs> no. But I do want to acknowledge that is the film... I don't feel like the film's saying anything too lash about that because, again, I think it's part of the American ideology of, mm. of chasing sort of that mindset of individual, uh, you know, whatever power means to you in that sense. That's interesting. Um, I just want to, want to tread I don't it carefully. Agree, well, fair but, enough. Um, <laughs> that's uh, that's, that's, my, that's uh, my take. It's quite interesting to do mm. it in Texas. I yeah, I mean, because I mean, it's a red state and I think that's where a lot of the industrial visuals you're going to get I think I think Sean Beck is very deliberate. I think it's also it's also not a very um, sex positive state. Too. It's very Christian yes, oriented yes. state. Um, um, and you're not going to get a lot of accepting of of homophobia or any of those other things yeah. down there as well. So I think that that definitely plays into the. Um, I, I want to say the um, when, especially when he arrives, the sort of exclusion he immediately gets. Sure. Um, yeah. So it's it. it it's definitely an interesting premise centered around a donut shop. <laughs> Which I wish was uh, the donut shop from Tangerine. And mm. apparently one of the first lines, I shouldn't say apparently, one of the first lines in Starlet, which again does revolve around the LA sort of sex industry, is ab- about Mikey, a character named Mikey. Oh, he might n- need to use that room. I was like, is this a Sean Baker cinematic universe? <laughs> Speaking of Sean Baker cinematic universe, I want to talk about the cinematography a bit. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's funny because when I first saw Florida Project, I mistaked that for 16mm. It's actually 35 And in fact, this film is 16mm, which especially looked nice on the outdoor screen. Like the oh, the super grainy nighttime photography mm-hmm. in particular was absolutely gorgeous. It actually reminded me of some of the photography I've taken of like, you know, the industrial areas of Henderson, you know, a bit down south from mm-hmm. here, which I put on my Instagram page if anyone wants I, to check. I, I did see it. Yeah, that reminded me. The one shot in particular with Red Rocket. Look, I'm like, yeah, that's a shot. <laughs> that's the one I've taken. Um, but the thing I really wanted to talk about, and I I want to hear if you agree with me on this, is the camera feels far more cinematic in this film than it did in Florida Project. You have several dolly moments, particularly when we introduced a Lonnie Washington's car. They sort of have this really careful dolly, you know, as if it's conscious of its introducing the character. There's a number of varifocal shots mm. where, um, yeah, which is when, um, for anyone who doesn't know, that's when the camera zooms in, but the depth of field doesn't change. Right, um, yeah. Or which the focus, uh, the focal point doesn't change. My so assumption... is a very Eastern European style of cinematography. Right. And my this is something I talked to about Mel as well, because I, I frankly had to ask her, I'm like, is this sort of the angle you would see a lot in a lot of <laughs> pornos, like that, that particular zoom? And I think what she replied with was, it, it, I feel like it's something to do with like the fetishization of very specific body parts, using them directly into an eye or into the mouth or into mm. you know, a specific body part. That's kind of what it's commenting on. But absolutely, that's one of them. The other one is a lot of the tracking shots when the cars are zooming down. Very cinematic. You know, We've got this wide as it's tracking at, at high speed, and then the camera gets closer and closer and closer. It's like, it's like on a mm. crane, or at least it feels like it's on a crane. Um, yeah. Just very cinematic compared to his previous films. Oh, I couldn't buy that. And then there's a couple yeah. of, uh, 
almost look Wes Anderson esque shots in there. Mm, it felt like particularly sure. the stuff with Strawberry and him by the behind the counter as they're oh, yeah, squeezing sort of... their chairs closer together. Yeah, yeah, that um, that blocking with the symmetric framing. Yeah, that's a good point actually as well. Yeah. I mean, in Florida Project, lower, yeah, lower third too. Yeah, Florida Project does have some Wes Anderson shots, particularly the huge wide as everyone walks out when the power goes out. Like a, that was a very Wes Anderson. So I think, I think that in particular is not brand new for Sean Baker. I love the way he uses it, and especially with the color, mm-hmm. you know, the bright colors of the donut shop. But yeah, I just I thought it was interesting that it, it was a way more cinematic, and to me, it kind of felt because of this and because so many of the characters feel like they're serving Mickey's story this kind of felt a lot less i don't want to say authentic it feels authentic but like it felt more like a film if you know what i mean it felt more orchestrated it felt more like a lot of the characters in the florida project they're just people that live at their motel Mm -hmm. there's very few characters that really actively serve the plot that regards mooney and Haley. in this though you know, you have the the mother and and so yeah, the stepmother and and his wife, and of course you got Strawberry and you know the people that he deals you know the, the weed with, and so like they all feel like they're there to serve his arc, which isn't a bad thing at all. Mm. I'm just saying that makes it feel more filmy than the Florida Project, which felt closer to a documentary in that sense. But, yeah, um, I just that. I thought it was very interesting. Yeah. <laughs> what about the song choice? Yeah. So. I kind of love it. I, I know that's the song that plays in the trailer, so I was very aware going in that they had a big obsession with Bye Bye Bye. But <laughs> they play it like three, four times in the movie. Different covers of it too. Um, Strawberry does the piano cover. Exactly, yeah. Um, Susanna Sun's cover of, of Bye 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 is, is great. But I think... and I almost felt like the end of the film for a second there. Hmm? Like that scene when she was performing and it like got oh, into it. I was, like, I was like, is the movie about to end? No. no I, I didn't get that I'm, sense. One of my biggest critiques of the film is I do think it might have a slight... It feels more elongated, and at times it's a little... I think it's a little... I actually do think it's too long. Sure. Film. I mean, particularly when he's going back and forth between the two houses at the end. Yeah. That, yeah, that, that was a bit... There was a lot of beats in the there. The epilogue was just elongated, and mm. I don't see... I know they had to get him to a place where he's getting chased out of the house completely naked. I know that was the whole sort of point of that scene, but it was very elongated. And I actually thought by the end, I was, I was really starting to lose steam with the film. Um, I think it could have been 10, 15 minutes shorter um, myself personally. Um, Well, even just that scene when he's running away, he returns to the mother. She gives him what? $200. They go back to the, so he can put on his clothes. Yep. I think those were a lot of beats that, Probably didn't need to be in there. Yeah. Imagine if if it ended with him arriving at Shor- Strawberry's house, but new. naked. Yeah. I think that would have and been with a, zero dollars. I probably think that would have been a more effective because that's it. Stripped because yeah. stripped back to all he is. That's all he is. Yeah. As a person, and I think that's uh, that's interesting. I I agree. There were too many beats in there, and and the one moment before I guess we will get into highlight scenes because that'll play into the bye 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 um sort of covers if you will perfectly, but. There's one scene, and I, I want to see if you agree with this. The actual pile-up scene, or when you know they're driving and they cut off the truck. Which leads to a 20-car pile-up. Yeah, yeah, but the way it is edited, and keep in mind, Sean Baker edited this himself. Yes. There's not, not a miscommunication here. It cuts off very abruptly. 
And when we lead into the next scene, we see the two sort of freaking out. Mm. You know, um, I think it's Lonnie who like is throwing up on the floor, like a visceral reaction to. Frankly, at least in my opinion, I didn't realize that he had caused a pile. I thought he's cut off a, a truck. Yeah, that's definitely. I think that's a budgetary thing, though. Like that. Well, I, and I'm. I think the only reason that's, a, and I probably will stand by it being a budgetary decision because. They that car pileup could have quite easily just been stock footage. Um, well, it could have been sound because you see that that setup is really great. We're in the car, we see them pass the truck, and then have to do the hard ride, and we hear yeah. like the the horn. If you just play that a little longer, where it's it's still drive, we're still looking for it, and they're but reacting you just, to it. You just hear yeah. the sound of the bang, bang, Ooh. bang. These other what I am, I just cannot believe I, I they didn't do that. Think the way you just pitched that, hundred percent would have been more effective. Yeah. Seeing them react to it in the moment, in real time. I was just um, sort of too, confused like, and just awkward. Just being mortified as to what happened. All yeah. sound, 100% agree. You don't have to see anything. Because that way, it does keep that grounded, really. Like, we don't need the big action set piece. We would understand no. the gravitas would happen solely through their reaction. I literally just wanted that shot to be another 10 seconds long. Maybe yeah. even five. And those elongated car sequences can be really interesting yeah. too, from that backseat perspective. You know, you could have him frantically speed up and drive away and 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 just have all of um mikey's reactions to it like screaming you know what the f what the hell like it i 100 percent i think that would have been yeah. way more effective because it's very weird because they cut and it, they don't cut to like they cut to a, it's a wide that moves yeah into of the, a, they a drive medium, into the frame wide mean yeah drives in the frame and then because yeah, i didn't realize they, they had the caused reaction, anything yeah. Until it shows up on TV, I was, I was those couple of beats. I was like very whether confused. they were trying to create. A, he was trying to create a suspense to what happened, but I guess so. But for me, it was like, oh, he cut because this is the thing. That conversation having in that car is literally. It's the moment in the trailer when he's like, oh, you know, I'm on, I'm on the top of my game, bro, on every single level. I thought what it was saying is that, oh, you know, they cut off a truck, and then he immediately has this like visceral reaction of like, oh my god, oh my god, oh my god. I thought it was an overreaction because I didn't realize they'd actually caused a pileup. Yeah. And I, I I assume it was intentional to leave us in the dark to wonder, oh, why are they having that reaction? To me, I didn't realize they had caused But they answer the all. question pretty quickly. So the leaving in the dark part... like it's, it's just an awkward short amount of time that you're left in the dark. Yeah. yeah. That was my one, like, big complaint. Like, even, like, the ending being, like, a little dragged out. Like, I didn't really mind that ultimately mm. i do i think it would have been nice if they kind of shorten that that chunk but that editing choice which i think would have been very simply resolved by just letting that shot last another five seconds and then cue some extra sound effects of cars crashing mm. that would have that would have been incredible that would have been a wonderful but eh, i don't know just a strange editing choice i wasn't a huge yeah, fan cool. of very cool yeah um, do you have anything else you'd like to add before we move into highlight scenes? No, I'm pretty happy to jump right in. No dramas. Bud, what was your highlight scene? So, yeah, like you said, you mentioned it, bye, bye, bye. I think the rendition and that shot of them in bed together, that, you know, there's quite an intimate shot of them in her bed specifically. Mm. Before she gets up, obviously she's naked, she's playing the piano, has a rendition. But what I like about this scene, other than, like, the intimacy and the, and the sort of how quiet it is, and obviously, you know, she's really great, but the fact that she's really great... I feel like there's, there's this underlining feeling of there, like, this is something else she could do. This is another career pathway. You know, yeah. She could sing. She could play the piano. This is another talent she has that I'm kind of glad the film doesn't go into it 
it's just subtle enough that it's like, oh, this is this is another talent she has, but but Mikey almost doesn't care. Yeah, because it doesn't serve his interests. Exactly. I I think that might have to be my highlight scene. Well, mine's actually going to be also a bed sequence. Um, I do like another. There's another. They, they do pepper in. She could be destined for better things throughout the film, like when she's really good at algebra, and like oh, doesn't even yeah, know algebra and, and such. There's there's quite clear, she's very intellectual. Sure, but um, and it's just kind of in a dead end town right now, and really kind of wants to get out, and that's mm. what Mikey preys on. But me, it's actually I'm actually going to go with the scene between Mikey and Lexi, which is sort of almost the inverse of this scene mm. that you've just talked about, which is um, Mikey sitting forward of frame, left of frame, and Lexi's the one sitting, you know, on the back right, and she's talking about wanting to go to uh, a what I believe is like some like like foster care sort of parental checkup and wants Mikey mm. to come with her. Right. And um, he just he's lashes just completely out. neglectful of her, basically, yeah. and is so despondent. But the way they create distance in that flame, I actually think like the actress that plays uh, Lexi is is fantastic. Um, Brie Elroyd. Yeah, she Elrod. What she does with her her particularly her non dialogue acting is just fantastic. Mm. Um, that scene and then like the scene I talked about a bit earlier when Mikey's saying like I'm leaving, I'm full of crap, I'm horrible. Yeah, and she's just giving He's nothing. Subdued. Um, yeah, like subdued rage. Yep. It's just unbelievable. But this scene is particularly kind of heartbreaking too because you really kind of are seeing this cycle of toxicity that this relationship has always had. Mm. Um, he's always been making decisions on his terms and she's really never been able to build herself up. Clearly, you know, we don't really... Um, we only get brief insights into what their relationship was like as teenagers. We know they both left for the adult film industry when they were in their late teens at the same age as now, Strawberry is, it sounds like. So it's it's very interesting that, you know, we see what he looks like compared to what she looks like and mm. see what that industry did for him and what it did for her. And I definitely think there is that, definitely that shadow of negativity there for sure. Um, but most importantly, the cycle of, of toxicity and male toxicity, which is yeah. present in this relationship. Um, because... She, you know, she's always come off second best the whole time. And mm. um, I think it's a really effective, powerful scene. So Beautiful. Sums up the whole film, really. No dramas. Well, Red Rocket is currently out in cinemas near you. Speaking of cinemas, Jake. Mm. Let's do cinemas and streaming platforms this week. Yeah, a bit of an interesting week. We have Brazen come to Netflix, which sees mystery writer Grace Miller using her killer instincts to help solve her sister's murder. Also got Afterlife Season 3, of course, the Ricky Gervais show, which I'll just say this. I'm glad that Serialized exists so you can rate and comment on shows so that I can give that show a horrible review because that's what it deserves. (laughs) 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 I am not looking forward to Season 3 of Afterlife, but I probably will end up watching it because I hate myself, much like the main character in that show hates himself as well. Uh, Marvel's Eternals comes to Disney+. Plus. You have Joel Cohen's The Tragedy of Macbeth coming to Apple TV Plus this week. So if you haven't caught it on cinemas, now's your chance to get the subscription. And, of course, you've got A Quiet Place Part 2 coming to Paramount Plus. So a lot of more recent films hitting their way to streaming. Finally give Quiet Place Part 2 a go. Yeah. Oh, my God. You still haven't seen it. Wow. I I forget about that. Yeah. Damn. Crazy. You've also got Hotel Transylvania Transformania. 
which is the full film in the animated series, come to There's prime. Four of them? There's four of them now. Yeah. To be fair, the first one came out like, a, like ten years ago, a long time ago. So they've they've sort of spread out, which I which I don't mind. And as I mentioned earlier, the second season of Euphoria begins airing today on Binge, which I'm very excited about. And your favorite character from the Suicide Squad gets his own show, Peacemaker, primarily written and directed by James Gunn, as in he's written and directed the majority of the episodes in this series, uh, begins airing later this week on Binge. Mm. You going to check it out? I actually um, got two months free Binge, so maybe oh, I'll, uh, very nice. jump on Binge. There you go. Watch all the things that I haven't seen yet. Perfect. I'm surprised we didn't give um, the Suicide Squad a shout-out in our awards this year. It yeah, was, pleasant it was surprise. Pleasant surprise. If we had a pleasant surprise category, that would be. <laughs> it's not a bad idea for next for next year, yeah. maybe. Yeah, it's going to end up being a three-hour show. It's going to be the actual Oscars. <laughs> this is by by a good chunk our longest episode we've ever done right now. We are well over two hours right now. Wow! Wow! There you but, go. There you go. Only only other time we've passed two hours was now <laughs> Black Widow episode. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> But we covered a lot in that one in terms of the Marvel mm-hmm. shows that came out in the first half of the year. And, of course, coming to cinemas this week, we have Scream, which, of course, is, the, I guess, the fifth one now, which people are very excited for. Yeah. It's the first one not from Wes Craven, of course, because, unfortunately, he passed away uh, quite a few years ago now. But it does take place 25 years after the events of what I imagine is the first film, is what they're referencing mm-hmm. here, uh, where a new killer has donned the ghost face mask and begins targeting a group of teenagers to resurrect secrets from the town's deadly past. Um, I've only seen the first Scream. We did it when we did our Nightmare on Elm Street episode. I caught it, and I actually enjoyed it very much so. so there you go. Maybe, maybe in a, like a Holly, Holly, oh, Halloween, Hollywood. 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 <laughs> Halloween 2018 sort of soft reboot sequel way. It could be very good. Who knows? You also got King Richard, which sees Will Smith play the father of Venus and Serena Williams during their early coaching days. And I think he actually won the Golden Globe for Best Performance. There we go. So you can catch that in the next week. And finally, speaking of award-winning performances, although I don't think she's won yet, I, I can tell you, but uh, Christian Stewart plays Princess Diana in Spencer, which previews across Luna's cinema, so it's- that is... Trippy, how much Trippy. she looks like Diana. Yeah, oh, the makeup's incredible. Blew it's, my mind. Saw the trailer good. today before Red Rocket, and I was like, I kind of want to see this How film. good is the trailer? Yeah. It's really what's good. Cover the, what's the cover of the song they're doing? It's oh, like, God, I can't remember. It's like a choir cover of a song. Oh, it's a it's a Perfect Day from Lou Reed. That's right, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, that's it. What a and it's like a choir a, color, yeah. cover, and I was like, wow, I thought... This song couldn't get any better outside of train spotting. <laughs> it always gets better. I'm very excited for it. Well, it previews that uh, this is Luna, Leaderville, Essex, and Windsor all on Sunday the 16th. I think 4 p.m. across all those locations. So mm. from um, Zathura fame, of Zathura fame, Christian Stewart. Exactly. Oh goodness. Well, that's it. That's it. actually it's kind of a big week. It is a big. That's a big week. I'm, I'm excited. We're for not that. doing any of those next week on the show. No, we're not. But we are finally ticking this one off the list. We're catching up, Zeke. Jake, what are we watching? Next week on the show, we're watching Licorice Pizza. It's a god-awful small affair To the girl with the mousy hair I'm at the crown of Mary one day. But her mummy is yelling no And her daddy has told her to go Listen, young lady... But her friend is nowhere to be seen. So how'd you become such a hot shot actor? I'm a showman. That's what I'm meant to do. 
to the seats with the clearest view. And she's hooked to the silver screen. Do you know who I am? Yeah. Do you know uh, who my girlfriend is? Barbara Streisand? Barbara Streisand. Sand. Sand, yeah, like sands. Like the ocean, like beaches. Barbara Streisand? <sighs> no, like Streisand. Sand. But the film is a sad thing for. This is fate that brought us together. But she's lived it ten times or more. Our roads took us here. She could spit in the eyes of fools. You're not my director. They ask her to focus on. Do you really want to see my boobs? Can I touch them? See you tomorrow. Alana Kane and Gary Valentine navigate the treacherous world of first love in San Fernando Valley, 1973. And that's about as vague as I would like to keep it, since I have seen this. Mm. I have thoughts I have on not. it, and uh, it'll be good to reconvene next week and discuss. I am looking forward to it. Well, we're going to have a quick exit here, because we've, yeah, we've kept you along long, long enough. Well over two hours. That That is a tremendous effort. We are very sweaty right now. We are. The fans are all off. Yes. Third... <laughs> Congratulations on turning three, Jake. Oh, thank you. I'm glad I'm free. Congratulations to you for turning three. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> Until then, thank you for joining us for the Cinema Shy Show podcast. Shy Show. Shy Show. The Shy Show. Are you free, Zeke? It's I'm fine. Getting senile already. Um, yeah. You're three years old. It's fine. You're allowed to make pronunciation. The Cinema Shy Show podcast. I was Zeke. I was Jake. We'll catch you next week with Licorice Pizza. <laughs>